Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Knockback is brought to you by, well, you. If you want to learn how to support our show, go to collinslaststand.com. Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Knockback. My name is Colin Moriarty. I'm joined, as always, by my brother, Dagan Aga Moriarty. Dagan, thank you for joining me today. I had a feeling you were going there. I was going to whistle, but I can't, so I have to go with that. Agro! Yeah, I can't... Uh, you know, I, I it was it was crazy. I was reading some stuff and I, I kept thinking, I'm like, isn't his name Argo? You know, and then I was like, these people in this article are wrong. His name is Argo. And then I looked and I'm like, no, it's it's no, it's, it's aggro. It's, it's aggro. It's, yeah, yeah, it's totally aggro. So <laughs> it's I was totally, like, it's yeah. definitely not aggro. It's Argo. But he'll he'll always be Argo to me. So uh, nonetheless, but Dick, how are you today? I'm How's doing life? I'm doing well, my friend. Not not too bad. Midstream during the week. The craziest thing just happened to me downstairs, actually. Perfect point for a converse, opening conversation. So I'm I'm downstairs preparing my iced coffee, as I always do before the show in the kitchen. Helene and Graydon are getting dinner together. And the deja vu strikes. We all know it. You know, it's like random, totally sneaks up. You never know when deja vu is going to hit. As I'm standing there at the kitchen island preparing my iced coffee, the deja vu is getting thicker and thicker. Every single thing I do, every single thing I say is like, what? I've done this before. I've done this already. This is this has happened already. I put it, you know, to the smallest detail, putting the spoon, stir the coffee, put the spoon in the sink, get the ice out of the fridge. I'm, and now I'm trying to control it. I'm like, all right, let me see what happens. So I'm saying things to Helene on purpose in order to try to break the deja vu, but everything I'm trying to do and say, the smallest action, the smallest bit of conversation is just adding to the deja vu. It was so weird. It was like there was no way out of it. So if that did happen to me previously, I was also trying to get out of it, which means maybe the deja vu has happened more than twice. Does that make sense? Has that has mm. that ever happened to you before? Where it's like you're trying mm. to get escape this feeling because Deja vu is a little off-putting. I don't mind it. It doesn't happen to me that often. I'd love to quantify it somehow, like say like it happens to me four or five times a year or something, but I really don't know. But now I'm thinking maybe the deja vu thing is more layered than just this has happened to me before. Maybe this has happened on, you know, at length. Maybe this has happened over and over again. So it really got got the wheels turning. I don't need to think about more than what we're talking about today. I'm not sure I have the intelligence and the capacity for that, but that was just something I wanted to throw by you. Has that ever happened to you before where it's like you're trying to purposely, you know, sort of take yourself out of that deja vu moment, but everything you do is only getting you pushed further in, if that makes sense. Yeah, that sounds hard. I mean, that's that is so that's too meta for me. It's almost like uh, Inception in some way. Uh, I know. Some sort. Yeah, it's too. I find deja vu incredibly unsettling as well because it's so real and weird 
And then it goes away, obviously. Yeah. Momentary, at least right. in my in most cases. And doesn't seem like the case here, but yeah, that's horrifying. <laughs> it's twenty twenty. It's a, it's twenty twenty deja vu. Well, that could, could I mean, that could that could definitely speak to 2020 in general. Now, Kyle, you just gave me a quick idea. We have to put this on the back burner. I'll jot it down in one of the notebooks. And maybe it's been done already. But what about the premise? Maybe a horror movie, a thriller, whatever, a novel, who knows, where the deja vu doesn't go away. It just it just keeps going. You know what I mean? Mm. Where a deja vu, the one comforting thing about deja vu if it does bother you, is that you know it's going to end at some point. Seconds in, a minute in would be already really long. What if the deja vu, that feeling just did not subside? It didn't go away. I think we might have something here. Yeah, it's almost like a little bit of Groundhog Day, kind of. Mm. But or That's true. That's true. That's 51st a good dates, kind of. I'm saying I'm not just like that, but like kind of these different elements of these different things where... You have to uh, meld these ideas together. Yeah, man, you might have something. You should write up a treatment. Send it to Hollywood. I'm going to do it. See what happens. This is my big ticket in. Finally, this is it. That is it. All right. Well, <laughs> what about you? What's going on with you? I Nothing new. Nothing no? really new to report. I'm just hanging out and uh, working and playing games and whatever it is that I do all day. So, you know, t- cleaning up and finally packing things away i have an absurd amount of t-shirts like hundreds of t-shirts so i i and they've just been like coming around with me in all these different places for the last few years and i only wore like 10 of them for the last year probably just over and over again so i did like a bunch of laundry and have all my t-shirts folded put some t-shirts that i don't really want but that are sentimental for some reason away and just slowly kind of getting packed in I'm not not an, an awful amount of rush here. I also find myself just getting caught up in YouTube vortexes that can last hours and dangerous. So dangerous. It's, it's incredible how how I was thinking about this today. It's not a huge surprise. Google can afford the very best engineers in the world, but just how good the engineers are there in terms of writing these algorithms that just consistently give you more videos to watch. And I know this is old news, obviously, but. It's just funny how it, it kind of gets this idea that you might like something that you would never look for. And I, I found my way down. There's this guy in Utah that runs this. He's like in his 20s and he, and he runs this roadside repair thing for cars and trucks. And he like videotapes himself doing it. And so I just been watching those for like <laughs> hours. And I don't know why. And then, I, and then I'll like segue over to Steve Wilkos and watch, per, you know, people fighting about, you know, where did someone cheat on someone or whatever? And you find your way over to Maury and <laughs> I can lose hours ended. and hours to this. Oh yeah. It's... And then of course, dude, the Karen compilations and the, all the videos. And I was making Michael laugh because I, I was saying the Karen. I love all the different Karen YouTube channel names, like Karen apocalypse. My favorite is Karen got Karen's gone wild, which is like <laughs> the funniest name. And it's just people like going around and compiling all these people, like losing their minds in public and, and there's bad the people that are like catch things on their dash cams and everything. I'm just it's incredible. It's an incredible world out there. Oh, my God. It's it, there's so much entertainment. I mean, there's so just for doing the show, right? There's so much knowledge at your fingertips. Like I could I want to do Shadow of the Colossus. I could find out about you his former incarnations, gen design. I could talk. We could we could go down a whole, you know, rabbit hole on the PS3, whatever. 
it's all it's so great for doing a show like this for research and knowledge and all that kind of stuff. But on the other side of it, the entertainment factor and just getting lost in the endless amounts of entertainment that you like you said, a vortex. I mean, it really is a virtual vortex. And the thing is, too, it's never ending. But what I wanted to ask you was, do you sit there and actually watch it like a television program or you do, do you kind of just listen to it in the background while you're doing other stuff? Well, it's a little bit of both, but then I get caught into just staring at it, you know, because I put on the office often when I'm like making food and at night and like making dinner and just dicking around and a few episodes will play in the background and I'll come in and out. And with YouTube, I almost feel like I don't want to do that because if you're watching a Karen compilation, for instance, someone, let's say, freaking out at a Walmart, <laughs> that might last 20 or 30 seconds. So you don't want to you might miss the whole thing. You might miss it. Yeah, yeah, Absolutely. I don't want to miss it. No, I understand. I hear so, you, my friend. Yeah, so that's what's going on in my in my world. But <laughs> you're preaching to the choir. <laughs> also, I will say the the arms race in my neighborhood, the Christmas decoration arms mm. race, is just. I won't participate in it. Obviously, maybe I'll do get a wreath or something like that. But <laughs> people are people are getting like out of control with the blow up. These things didn't even exist when I was a kid. Um, these like blow up things and yeah, you would attach like air oh, God. The pumps to yeah, or whatever. The compressor and, and everybody. They, the yeah, compressor, has yeah. Its own and, generator. And it's, I mean, it's crazy. And there's this one there's this one helicopter with a, a polar bear oh in it in God. one of these guys. And, and it's got like swirling propellers and rushes. <laughs> Rush is so scared of it when we walk by. Oh, that's awesome. he's like so <laughs> I have to actually pick him up and walk by it. Uh, for oh, some reason, amazing. he's like only scared of that one. So, uh, yeah, so it's it's totally outrageous. Like, the, I love my neighborhood. It's awesome. Everyone's really friendly, but it's just insane. And I just can't do it. I just can't get. First of all, these things were going up in like no on November 15th. You know? OK, that's a little early. No, that's a little bit like no, it was like absurd. It was like everyone's done already. Like everyone. It's like they've been done for weeks. Everything's just it is that it is what it is. And and then, you know, when the, when the some of these people have like literally a dozen of these animals in their yards and then, you know, when the the air compressors aren't on, they like deflate and it looks like it looks like some sort of battlefield, like where everyone yeah, looks dead. like hell in yeah. the daytime until until nightfall and then everything looks gorgeous. But yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, they're all deflated and wilted and everything. Let me ask you this. Are you going to get browbeat for not joining in on the festivities? Are you going to be the only dark house on that block could be Maybe. bad. Could be bad for you. I, I got to tell you, something came to mind to me for me to, to kind of dodge this a little <laughs> bit, which was what if and I was thinking about this when I was walking rush uh, yesterday. I'm like, what if I put a menorah in my window? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's completely acceptable. I think it's completely gonna, acceptable. I think, dude, there's a there's a decent like one third chance I'm going to put a menorah in my window. Yeah. <laughs> Like one out of three times that this happens, a menorah is going in that window. I don't know. So I don't know. I would. Do, I mean, why not? A menorah. Yes. Less, less grandiose. There's a much smaller scale. It's not, you know, it's not bling like a Christmas tree or a giant polar bear decoration, giant polar bear slash helicopter decoration. It's Dude, the helicopter polar bear is all just out of respect <laughs> for the, 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 the privacy of my neighborhood and my neighbors. I will not send pictures of this to you, but. They're all some of them are some of these things must cost hundreds of dollars. Oh, they do. No, they do. If you go into Home Depot, you could see two, three, four hundred dollars. I don't know. Maybe compromise. Maybe get the giant inflatable menorah 
Just do the one thing. Just the one thing. That would be that would be fucking awesome. Maybe it's a cartoon menorah with a face. I don't know. I've often said that I'm an honorary Jewish person anyway. We are from Long Island. We are a friend of the Jewish people. Of course. On Long Island, of course. And so I was going to get them. But I got to say, it's very Larry David, although Larry David is Jewish, because I was going to get the menorah simply so people left me alone. So that if anyone was thinking that, what's oh, the street looks so nice. Everyone's got their (laughs) Christmas trees out and Santa. And I just put a menorah out. I'm like, well, I'm Jewish. So, you know, I don't give a fuck if it's not true. You know, but I was thinking that maybe that's how I get away with it. Colin Moriarty, the Jew. (laughs) Colin Moriarty, the Jew. (laughs) You know, why not? Give it a shot. I would just it's it'll be entertaining just for the fact of when you really get to know these people and develop friendships over the next few years. And they find out you're not Jewish and you have to explain the Christmas of 2020 when you had the giant menorah on your <laughs> better yet, if I just did it for years, you know, and they, just even if after they even after they found out, I still just kept putting out a menorah, lighting a candle every day, <laughs> you know, very deliberately. I love it. I love this so, plan. I, I really dig this this idea. You got to do it. The Abrahamic religions, you know, everything's based off of Judaism anyway. So. We are all kind of Jewish. <laughs> I mean, Italian people and Jewish people, not that. Not that different. We've always said that, right? Very, very similar cultures, I would say. I would ar- definitely argue that. Certainly. It's the tri-state culture, I think. But yeah, I agree with you there. All right. So I'll let you guys know if I co-opt any sort of culture. Keep us posted. And how that goes. But Dig, you had already said, and so let's get into it. It's time for Shadow of the Colossus. This was a topic that you wanted to do. And so we did it. And we were originally going to do the PS2 version playable on PS3 through the Team Eco collection, but then we opted to do the 2018 remake instead, which I think was wise because I probably would have uh, killed myself if I had to play the original, the original with the original <laughs> controls. But just to go over it, this so I, I did enough research and kind of looked into it. And Bluepoint does this. I mean, they just did Demon Souls, which came to PS5, but. They're very true when they do these kinds of things, and there's really not that much added to the game in terms of content at all. It's just the same game. And uh, so I think that this spoiler cast or knockback rather is good for um, for the PS2 version playable on PS2 or PS3 and then the PS4 remake. But the original came to PS2 in October uh, of 2005, October 18th, 2005. It actually came to the U.S. I didn't know this came to the U.S. first. Uh, so uh, it was made in Japan, obviously, but came to the U.S. first. And then it got out in Europe and Australia elsewhere by February of 2006. Like I said, it came to PS3 in the Team Eco collection back when those kinds of collections were still quaint in September of 2011. And then the Blue Point remake came exclusively to PS4, which is what we played uh, on February 6, 2018. Like I said, the game is was made by Team Eco working internally at Japan Studio in Tokyo. Japan Studio, of course, is a Sony first party studio, but really they're an incubation farm mostly. And a lot of games go through there through the XDev initiative and others. But they do have internal teams there. And Team Eco was one of them. And they existed there for more than a decade. Their first game was Eco, which came to PS2 early on in its run in 2001. And then they worked on this. And then it took them a very long time, indeed, 11 years. But they did another game. Uh, which came to PS4 in 2016 called The Last Guardian. 
which I didn't play and I have no real interest in playing. I did buy and play Eco when it came out. I was in high school and I wasn't a huge fan of it, but uh, that's not that's neither here nor there. It has nothing to do with this, but I was glad you chose this topic because I'm such a big PlayStation fan and I covered PlayStation and still cover PlayStation professionally for so long. This is one of the very rare exclusive games that I didn't play that doesn't come from a genre that I have no interest in. So I don't play Gran Turismo games, for instance, even though they're huge in PlayStation. It's just not my thing. And I I don't really care for Twisted Metal and the old God of War games. But Shadow of the Colossus, with the exception of like a half an hour I spent with it in 2007, and I'll talk about that in a minute. uh, I never played it. And I just really my original experience with it on PS2 left such a negative, indelible experience on my mind that I never went back to it. Wow. And um, so I was really interested and excited to play again anew for the first time really in 13 years. But Dig, I'm wondering, since you chose this topic, Shadow of the Colossus, Team Eco's Shadow of the Colossus, I'm wondering why you chose it and when you first heard about it, when you first played it and all that. Yeah, you know, it's it's crazy because this is one of those games, much beloved, oft discussed games that you always hear talked about. So this was really close to the top of my list of more contemporary titles that I really wanted to see what all the fuss was about. And I was re- I have to say I walked away really surprised for you know you always hear about Ueda and Team Eco, now Gen Design and sort of their game design philosophy and the sort of subtractionist minimalist approach to games. It's ironic because I think I have just as much to say, if not more, about this game, despite that philosophy, as any game that we've played for Knockback over the last year or two. It's such a departure from a lot of the things that we've we've played recently for the show, and I want to talk about that, but my sort of initial attraction to the game, just in hearing about it from afar, was knowing that it was sort of a boss rush thing. You know, the boss fight in video games has been one of my favorite parts of gaming dating all the way back to like the mid to late 80s. If you think about the NES and the arcade games that we grew up with, whether it's, you know, space shooters or beat-em-ups or fighting games, whatever, I love the idea and the mechanic of the boss fight in gaming, sort of going through a level to get to sort of a test in order to progress to the next level to get to the next test. I just, I just love that. I always did. It always really spoke to me. So that was kind of my way in with this game. But, you know, I found a really beautifully crafted and thoughtfully designed experience wrapped inside of this super fun and exciting boss rush game. It's There's a good deal of dimension in the game that I, I wasn't aware of, that I really was surprised by, in addition to the gameplay mechanics and the way the game is played, especially compared to a lot of the more detailed, nuanced, and, you know, if you, if you will, busy games that we've been playing as of late. I came, you know, I feel like this game has, I was thinking, I don't know why I was thinking of this comparison, but I feel like this game, if you think back to the 80s, those frosted mini wheat commercials, the frosted side and the wheat side, I feel like Mm. this game sort of has that fun side and that sort of deeper emotional side. You know, I came to battle the enormous giants, but I stayed for the ingenious and the refreshing gameplay style and the unexpected emotional resonance that this game had with me. It's a really compelling game that I found really inspired the player or really inspired me at least in order to see what was next. You It always kind of prods you forward. You're always looking forward to the next experience. It's a game 
that I found was constructed of sort of epic milestones. Very clever. A very clever game in that way, especially being someone who is attracted to sort of the boss rush or the boss battle model, I found to be really a lot of fun. And a lot of emotion couched inside of an extremely entertaining game. You know, you're basically called upon, you're tasked with searching for giants and then finding a way to defeat them. You know, simple. But it's also a game that hits in a couple of ways because it has those, it is an action adventure game. It is a sort of a pared down, I, you know, it, it, this game is stripped of everything that would make it an RPG, but it's even sort of a stripped down version of Zelda. I mean, it's very pared down in a lot of ways. You have the action adventure elements, you have the puzzle elements, but there's also, I feel like it was really cleverly crafted to have a deeper meaning and a really weird thing that this game kind of left me with that I don't think I've ever experienced before in a game is that the game, I was feeling one way while playing the game and then near the end of my experience with the game to, I would say, finishing it and walking away from the game left me with a whole nother set of emotions that on top of just the fun I was having and oddly enough realizing and I want you and the and the our listeners to speak to this if you can realizing that I kind of was feeling the way that I felt after the game was played during my gameplay but I just was sort of suppressing it or I was preoccupied with other just having fun and I I don't think I've ever experienced a game like that where it really left me with a whole different set of emotions post game rather than you know while I was in the throes of playing so really uh, just so much there's just so much I want to say about the development about the philosophy about the environment the atmosphere you know you know I'm a big guy with scale and atmosphere and video games and that was one thing that I was expecting that I wasn't let down on you know really beautifully realized a, a beautiful aesthetic and it's odd because I, I feel like it's a polarizing game too. I, I feel like not everybody loves it. It's something very specific. But for me, I was I was all in. You know, now I want to go back and play Eco and I want to go back and, and play The Last Guardian and see all of you at his games and see, you know, what, you know, his design philosophy sort of was how that philosophy was imbued into those titles as well. The other thing I wanted to just start by saying, Kyle, you know, you already said Team Eco. Now, what is where do you come down on the whole Ico versus Eco thing? It seems to me that Eco is the more it's you know we're getting into this whole Studio Ghibli Studio Ghibli thing again with this, but it was interesting to me, and I want to, you all know much more about this than I will. I saw Ueda and one of his producers at Gen Design, I think, in a more recent interview thing because they were asking him about his fourth title, and he you know he couldn't talk about it, but it was an hour long thing. And it was Ueda, his Japanese producer, and a translator who was of Japanese descent. And it was a Western panel. They were English speaking, but I think they were Swedish people. The Western people were saying Iko, and Ueda and the Japanese people were saying Aiko. And they were doing it for an hour, back and forth, volleying, like tennis, in the same interview. So where does that... But yet I've heard that Iko is the, is the correct pronunciation. So where do you come down on that? Yeah, so it's one of those names. It reminds me a lot in some way of Ninja Gaiden, Ninja Gaiden, where when in the much before we were watching online video and when uh, Ico or Ico was announced in like the late 90s or in 2000, whenever it was at TGS, I believe it was. And 
we didn't know. I mean, we were just reading these things and reading magazines and all that. We didn't hear it being said. So I used to I, for years, I called it ICO. It wasn't until I started working at IGN that I was corrected that it's pronounced eco. It's there are a few things like that where I wasn't saying them right. Like I used to call id software ID software. <laughs> yes. I don't know why I, I, I just wasn't reading it right, you know, and and then it was like, no, it's id. I did the same thing. And you just so you, you learn some or East is another. I used to call it wise. Oh, yeah, of course. And how would you know back then? The Falcom. Yeah, the Falcom series. So it's just one of those things where I, I think it's I've heard I've never heard anyone in the industry that I know call it ICO. It's the same thing with like Ubisoft and Ubisoft, where I used to call it Ubisoft before I heard it say and it's, it's Ubisoft. Right. So like absolutely. And of course, classically Mario versus Mario, like we that one's a little more contentious for me because I, we know people named Mario and so, you know, but in the in the gaming industry that it's Mario. And and so I've come to accept that. So that's those are the way that's the way I say the name. But I don't know. I don't know for sure. It could be a Ghibli Ghibli thing that we've encountered in the past and it, but not like Argo and Agro. Uh, <laughs> no, was, no. Those are actually Completely two distinct. Names. Right. <laughs> So my introduction to this game, I was in college when this game was announced. And then uh, I think also at Tokyo Game Show. And then it came out. I remember it coming out and it is October 18th, 2005. I remember it coming out around my 21st birthday and it did. And um, I didn't play it at the time. I wasn't really in eco. And and this was still at a time when this was a while ago. I mean, this was 15 plus years ago. But when I was really much more still into role playing games and then you're scattered like horror games and action games and side scrollers. But I wasn't even really playing shooters at this point unless they were like very specific games. Like uh, uh, I really enjoyed like Kill Switch at this time. And um, for first person shooters, like the original Medal of Honor was unbelievable, but I wasn't really in that world. So Shadow of the Colossus was a game I felt safe kind of skipping. And it also came out because this fall, if I recall, Grand Theft Auto San Andreas also came out. I believe that might have been the one that might have been the actually the the what was it 2004 2005 oh, i think it was 2005 but whatever whatever it was uh, around that time it might have been the year before but i remember i remember these like kind of big games iconic ps2 games coming out in the middle of my college career not really having a lot of time to play them and more inclination to play them and i was doing freelance but i had a girlfriend and i was busy doing you know whatever stupid shit i was doing with my friends so so i skipped it and when i got my job at ign uh, Mark Ryan Salee, who's the guy that he still works at IGN in the on the product team. He's like, I think a VP there now, but he was at one time the head of IGN guides and he hired me uh, at IGN. And I went to his house, I remember, and uh, his apartment in San Francisco. And he was really eager to show me this game. And I it, it's still, I think, his favorite game ever. In fact, he's a motorcycle rider and he has like a custom uh, crest on his helmet on the back of his helmet that is the weak point Colossus oh that's a great thing. idea uh, which was super cool I remember how excited he was when he got that and whatever done but um yeah the sigil so he so yeah this and exactly the sigil so he showed me this game and I was like this is a great idea because in college especially I used to love games I used to love getting like stoned and playing a tales game or games that are, are immersive or whatever and this game had a lot of style and a lot of atmosphere but I just hated the controls i remember thinking i'm like i i actually can't believe how bad this game controls that i remember i remember thinking that like it, it even at the time controls have come so far since then f- over the last 15 years and really since i experienced it 13 years but i remember thinking at that time this game feels like shit 
And it turned me off to ever giving it a, a chance again. And I know that that's not an uncommon thing, but it stuck with me. And I have to say that I didn't know about games then what I know about them now, too. So I wasn't I, I was very learned on games at that point. But I think I am an expert in a lot of things in games now, maybe to a greater extent. And so I wasn't bringing that extra baggage of expectation with me either. It just didn't feel right. And it, like I said, indelibly stuck with me to the point where I'm like, I won't ever play this game again because it has. I remember thinking like it has no excuse. Why does it feel like this? I remember in the original, like triangle is jump and all that. It's just like weird. It's just weird. Yeah, obtuse. And so with the Blue Point remake, I'm glad that we did it this way because obviously it gives you a lot of different choices. You can play the original way and they kind of fixed it in some way. The control scheme, the control scheme is not really the problem now with the way the game feels. Now it's just about the way the game feels. And that's a, a whole nother thing. But I'm really torn on this game because on one hand in playing it and I played it basically in three sittings and I probably beat it in seven hours or something like that is I was really enamored with it and I found it really immersive and fun and I wanted to see what happened next and I wanted to know what Wander's story was and what was going on here and I felt a weird feeling about what he was doing and I felt sadness over killing the Colossus the Colossi and that's all well founded I guess when you see it later in the game but then I was conflicted where I was like why does it feel like this to play and I remember fighting, especially the last boss, Malice, the 16th Colossus, and I was like screaming at my TV (laughs) by this point because I I just there were certain things where I'm like, this isn't fun. And even the reward at the end of this doesn't make up for this not being fun. And I, I was reading things with Ueda where he was saying like they designed aggro to not listen sometimes like a real horse and stuff and i'm like but that's stupid right like i'm like that's dumb that's a dumb idea no offense and uh, (laughs) it's a video game when i put a control input in it should do what i'm telling the character to do it shouldn't it should just not sometimes not work and i i feel like that frankly that excuse was baked in in such a way in the pre-release environment in order to set the seed that it's intentional that the game feels like this. And I think that there's a real dissonance between the game's potential and what it is and the appreciation I have for it and the act of playing it. And they, I, I shouldn't say they really blue point. I think they're such purists and I get it. They want to, they want the game to play the same way. And like I said, they gave a new map. Yeah. Like a new control map, which is cool, but I almost felt like it was a missed opportunity where I'm like, okay, the game doesn't need to feel like this anymore. We can make the game feel better and making it feel better would make the game better. You know, like increased control would only make the game better, not worse. So I, so that was, so I had a kind of philosophical argument with myself when I was playing this game because I definitely saw much more of what people like in it. And I'm so glad I played it. And I think it's a good game. But I think people have blown so much smoke up Ueda's ass over the last 20 years. And I don't really know if it's earned compared to a lot of other developers that are much quieter and do 
I'm sorry, just as quiet rather, but do better work. Sure, I think. sure. And I don't mean, and I guess I'm also judging this game, Dave, if I'm being honest, I'm judging it based on a curve. This game is talked about, as you said, as one of the great games of all time. And I don't quite understand that. I think it's like one of the most unique and memorable games of that time. I'll say that, right? It's like you said, a boss rush game. Still kind of a unique idea. We have Titan Falls and some other stuff, but uh, I'm not Titanfall. Titanfall. We have a tight a Titan Souls and other games that do that, but not many. And that's usually a mode. And and so to build a game around that idea is awesome. I also love the the dissonance between sizes and the idea of like attacking something that's huge and holding on for dear life and stuff. I mean, that's good stuff. Sure. The idea of having like just a horse companion. I love the Zelda two like setup of this girl on a stone altar and stuff. There's a lot to really like about this game. So I'm not trying to say that it's like just a complete miss. But when I think about the great games of all time, the commonality between virtually all of them is that they're fun to play. (laughs) And whether you're talking about Symphony of the Night or even Super Metroid, which is a game that I find much more contentious than a lot of people. When you compare those games to this, I'm like, well. I don't know. I don't know about that. And so I know that's going to be a really contentious and and controversial thing and I know a lot of people are gonna be mad at me but I just the way I felt at the end of the game was relief because I didn't want to play it anymore wow okay that's really interesting and I didn't feel like that until the malice fight so I also feel like like I was like I was kind of into it I kind of I kind of felt like the game got easier like it got harder and then easier towards the end and I'm like oh that's kind of nice because it's not really about the fights anyway isn't it about the journey and what the game's trying to tell you and then oh no you got this fucking obtuse nonsense going on at the end (laughs) hey it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline ready to go to your happy place for a happy price well why didn't you say so just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels so whether it's cousin Kevin's kazoo concert in Kansas City go Kevin or Becky's bachelorette bash in Bermuda you never have to miss a trip ever again so download the Priceline app today your savings are waiting go to your happy place for a happy price go to your happy price Priceline so I don't want to I'm going in all sorts of different directions I think we should pare it down a little bit I want to start with uh, the idea of the game's atmosphere which I think is is really important. Of course, everyone knows if you're listening to the show or most of you know that our show is supported on Patreon, patreon.com slash Collins last stand for early ad free access to our show and other perks. And one of the perks is you get to submit your inquiries to our show, just like Bobby Kowecki did. He says, hey, hey, boys, first time, long time writing in. I'll get straight to the point. Can we talk for a second about the downright amazing atmosphere in the game and a time where dense story driven worlds like The Last of Us 2 and Red Dead Redemption 2 are the high watermark of establishing a living, breathing world. It really is a credit to Shadow of the Colossus that it flawlessly conveys the tone and tenor of the setting with vast empty vistas and subtle music tones as you're riding from fight to fight. I totally agree with this, Dagan, and I'm really curious to get your take on this of of the less is more kind of approach and if it's the wise approach, which we'll talk about in a moment. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the less is more thing I I do want to get into it into with you and the listeners in terms of gameplay especially but with the environment and the atmosphere i was really pulled in by it and it's one of those games that i could totally you know it's so it's so interesting what you say where you know can you hold this game up and appreciate it with the true greats over the last 20 30 years whatever the true video game pantheon of of greats 
you know, those hallowed halls. And I can really appreciate everything you're saying because I think what this game does successfully is not, it is something unique. I mean, it offers a lot of unique touches, at least for me. Now, also for you, for someone like you, Kyle, who's played so many things and really are indeed quite an expert, as a lot of our listeners are, you know, you're holding it up to, you know, a vast stamp, you know, a, a vast shelf full of games where it's like, you know, I've, I've played relatively little compared to that. But the setting and the environment is a great place to start. Because first of all, I don't remember starting a game, maybe ever, with so little context in every way. We begin with a lot of mystery. We don't know a lot about our main character. We know what his motive is. We don't even know his relationship to the girl that he's trying to... We could guess, but we don't know that, you know, beyond a doubt, his relationship to the girl he's trying to resuscitate, the deal he's making with this entity or this demon, all of these things... But the setting and the environment is so interesting to me because, and there's so much to say about it, but ultimately what it ended up reminding me, what it reminded me of is, is there's this, this beauty, there's this kind of, it's, it's vast, it's majestic, but there's a, there's a melancholy, you know, there's a really, there's a, everything is, if you look at the landscape, it's oppressed somehow. It's lacking the life and the color that it should have. It's very strange. It really reminded me of the Lord of the Rings movies, especially. Now, you could get this from the text as well, but if you look at the Peter Jackson Lord of the Ring movies and you look at places in that film like Gondor and Rohan, you could see these one these once great, beautiful cities. And the forest, too, even where the elves live in the various forest realms and stuff— you have that picturesque beauty, that sort of organic majesty, but there's something oppressed about it. There's a grayness. There's a veil over everything. And I realized very early on with this game, it's like you want to appreciate the beauty. You want to appreciate the landscape, the vastness, how far you could see the distant cliffs, the distant woods, whatever, the various lakes and waterfalls. But and you could see what this world once looked like in this for, in these forbidden lands but you know there's a there's an inherent sadness because you know it's sort of a shell of its former self and it's still beautiful but melancholy somehow too and that sadness and that loneliness you know sort of pressing down there's not that much life there's no people you know there's no npcs it's just pretty much wandering his horse with a smattering of life you know there's some hawks there's the occasional lizard. I think there's a few turtles that you stumble upon. And in the shrine itself, there's doves around the mono character. But there's really sort of an absence of life and activity. And I think that sort of atmosphere, though beautiful, is haunting. Because it's almost like the land is poisoned somehow. It's sick somehow. And it's some, there's something beneath the surface that's just not right. And I got that very early on in the game. You know, besides just seeing these once majestic runes and everything, just the land itself, you know, just the cliffs and the vistas and the plains and the forests and all that kind of stuff, something feels, something feels off. Something feels like it's spoiled in a way. And you don't, you know, the other thing is you're kind of driving forward. Like you said, there's a, there's a pressing need to see more, not just with the, Colossi, which of course are an, an amazing milestone to get to each one. You want to get to each one to see 
what they look like, to see their grand scale, to see how they're going to be defeated and all that, but also just to explore these lands and sort of satisfy your curiosity about where you are and what you're doing and what's wrong with this place. You know, that inherent feeling of what's what's wrong here. This place is awe-inspiring, you know, but you know it's, you know, it should be teeming with life and vibrancy and color. But even when the sun is at its brightest, it seems like there's a gray sort of translucent veil over everything. And I think if that was done on purpose, I think it's really, really meaningful. And I think it does borrow from, I think it does borrow from the Lord of the Rings. Not only that, but if you think about the glowing, you know, this ancient sacred sword that Wander wields, you think about in the Lord of the Rings movies or stories, the elves wield the el- those elvish blades worn and glow when danger is near, whether there's a goblin or an orc or a troll nearby Mm. that have that glowing sword. It seemed to borrow from that as well. The whole thing felt very Lord of the Rings-ish to me, where it's like, this was a place once great, and of course in Lord of the Rings, it's being oppressed by Sauron and sort of the empires of Mordor, but there's something similar, I feel like, pressing down or encroaching on these forbidden lands as well. And there must be a reason why it's separated from wherever Wander and Aemon and the, his entourage came from, because this is a place that's inherently dangerous or sealed off for a reason. We know, of course, that Dormin lives in this place and sort of lurks here and you know how mischievous this, this entity or demon or whatever he is is. So the atmosphere is a really big part of what was compelling to me, along with the Colossus, along with trying to find out more about Wander's story. You want to know, for me, I wanted to know more about the story of these Forbidden Lands. Why does it look like this? Why why is everything in ruin? And also, you know, I have to say, where did the Colossus come from? Was Were these things created as vessels to seal away Dormin? Did they already exist? And Aemon's ancestors sort of leveraged them for their own purpose to sort of imprison the various pieces of Dormin when he was split up, sort of like a Pandora's box sort of thing. What's the story behind the Colossus? These are the driving forces that wanted to propel me through the game. And I think I had never seen anything like that. Like I don't remember ever, and you could speak to this better than me, but for me, I don't remember ever starting with such a little amount of context and backstory and origins. You're You're sort of playing to discover... Everything, discover relationships, discover motivations, discover characters, the various character relationships, the, you know, the origins of these antagonists of these giant, you know, these giant godlike creatures. You don't, you really start knowing very little except the fact that Wander wants to bring this dead girl back to life and he's willing to make a deal with this entity you know, I, I set it out like this, Kyle, for the story, just as simply as I could. I said, you play as a young man who has journeyed from his home in order to find a way to resurrect his dead beloved. And let's encapsulate that part for a minute, because I'm not even sure Mono is his girlfriend. It could be a sister. It could be some kind of family relation. We really don't know, although we assume it's his romantic interest. And in the Forbidden Lands, where the game starts off, Wander makes a deal with a mysterious entity a disembodied voice that tasks our protagonist with finding and slaying 16 colossi. And in exchange, it is promised that the maiden will be brought back to life by this empowered demon or mysterious entity or whatever. Is that a fair place 
to start the start the story because we as we start out we really know very we know very little compared to that that's about all we know going in yeah we don't know we don't know anything uh, at the beginning of the game which i think is awesome actually we got a a letter here from michael lepper uh on patreon he says hey dudes shadow of the colossus does a top-notch job of filling the player with wonder what uh wonder about the protagonist the story the world and more importantly the colossus do you, do you guys think that leaving the player with such little information worked to the game's advantage or to the game's detriment? And I agree with you, Dagan. I think it worked to the game's advantage. I think that not knowing really much of anything is part of this game is really a massive part of this game's appeal. In fact, I've like many games or not many games, but some story driven or emotional games. The magic of the game is somewhat lost when you've played it. It's the way I feel about Journey. Oh, which is a game I absolutely adore, but I only played it one time because I knew that I will never be like that again. That 90 minutes or so was so special and so memorable and so impactful. Uh, Shadow of the Colossus takes more time, but I think it's a similar game where once you can connect some of the dots, you don't really have any answers at the end, but you know a little bit more. Like, I think my interpretation of the ending, for instance, kind of confirms that Mono is the love interest or whatever of wander right sure and yes stuff so like that i mean for me it kind of confirms that but it's up to interpretation and they don't really talk about the game very much so and haven't in the past there's a lot of analysis out there i didn't read any of it or watch any of it i don't really want to know what other people think about it i, I kind of wanted to just interpret it on my own and I, I thought your analysis of the the tolkien stuff was really on point because i don't know that i really made that connection but it, it there is that that similar ominous feeling although we again we don't know the difference between the sword and the ring i suppose is we actually don't know the nature of the sword until the game's over right isn't isn't am i interpreting it right that's fair to say i mean dormin is the this mysterious sort of omniscient entity in the beginning when wanda first arrives at the shrine he's surprised he i guess we'll just refer to dormin as he he's surprised to see the sword Although he recognizes it and he says, oh, what you're asking for with that sword could be possible. So he recognizes the power of the sword. So we know Mm. early on that this thing is Mm. some sort of relic either related to the demon or that at least the demon has some knowledge of. Yeah, you're probably yeah, you're right there. So there there is an interesting kind of connection. I, I, I like that connection that you made there, but I think the less is more stuff is cool, too, because. It forces you to kind of just or not, but hopefully just kind of take your time with the game and and run around and and see it for yourself. And the way I kind of described it in my notes and the way I kind of took it was I find this world incredibly the the ruins anyway of the world, like the the human ruins of the world. It's incredibly like Mesoamerican. I don't know if it would be like more Mayan or Aztec or Olmec or whatever, but there's a lot of that there. And it's kind of cool seeing a Japanese and dev team's interpretation of mesoamerican art because i think that that the temples and all that a lot of that's there and then there's kind of like a greek or especially roman kind of flair to some of it the bridge at the end like i thought that was some sort of abandoned aqueduct you know that's what it looks like and so that would be much more roman and so i i enjoyed the the aesthetic and and kind of just trying to figure out something about this ancient culture you don't really discover much about them ultimately but i do like that the less is more stuff here i don't know that we needed much more because i think that there are suggestions in in the world about like well you can kind of figure some things out about these people they're clearly 
religious. There's this huge temple. There's also all these shrines that you find that you can pray to. And so there's like some and you're talking to some sort of godlike creature. And, and I really like Dorman's Japanese voice acting. I think that's the only voice acting, but how it's like a woman and a man it's saying great. the lines together. Oh, it's so good. I think is a is really nice. So a lot of really cool and creepy touches. But I must say that I was more optimistic about Wander's. Well, this is, I think, one of the things the game does really well in not saying much is that I kind of felt like optimistic in the beginning. Like, oh, OK, well, we're going to do this. And you feel like something deeper is lurking underneath the surface. But you're just kind of going through the motions. And then you realize, like, well, first, like you start, at least for me, like I, I feel bad killing these things. And then you kind of realize like, well, what are you doing? And like, wh- is there a promise that th- anything's going to happen for mono and who is talking to you and where is everyone? And, 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 it, and the game does start becoming creepier and more ominous. I totally agree with you. And one of the things that I really love about the atmosphere uh, and the way the game presents itself and one of its creepier aspects is just those beams of light where each Colossus was killed and yes. how more and more of them appear. And by the time you're in the fight with malice at the end, the 16th Colossus, it's awesome because like as the camera's swinging around and stuff, you can see them all in the distance. So the game becomes like pretty sad. And, and I think melancholic is a really great way to put it. I didn't want to hurt these things, but I felt like I had to. And you do have to to obviously continue the game. But then you kind of realize not everything's right. And then you realize at the end, like, wow, this is real. You actually were totally used and worked and you probably should have known better. And that's why I say that the game's impact will surely be lessened. I think once you realize that and playing through it again, might be a different kind of experience and certainly would be because now you know that. And so you have some sort of foresight, but Zach Brown wrote into us day on Patreon. He says, brothers Moriarty. Good day. Good day. Says shadow. The Colossus has captured my imagination over all three console versions, constituting numerous playthroughs. And finally a reasonable platinum earned on the PS4 remake. And while I found the remake to clearly be the most beautiful and best controlling version, one question has remained is less truly more. I understand that a game with nothing but boss fights has a unique appeal that very few games without the punch out name do. However, should the game have added some environmental storytelling as wander and, uh, and aggro travel from Colossus to Colossus. Granted, this isn't a world that would work with audio diaries, but could something have been implemented to indicate what type of life existed in this wasteland before? I know they want to convey a sense of loneliness, but so did Metroid. And even those games found ways to give clues to the universe's past. Or should we just be left with the decaying structures so that we can make up our own stories? Your brilliant work continues to go strong and my continued thanks are owed to you both for that. So I like this question from Zach because it gets down to game design and narrative design as well. Could the game have used anything, Dagan, more literal? Or do you really feel like because and my my interpretation is I usually like a lot of dense storytelling but i feel like it's restraint is the shadow of the classes is restraint in this respect is certainly one of its uh, one of the positives but could have could it could have it used anything additional other than because the game doesn't even tell you its mechanics really or anything like that at all i love the sword thing like finding the enemy with the sword i think is really cool but even like what and we'll talk about this later like how to increase your health and all of that kind of, the game's pretty vague so could have could it have done anything to communicate with the, the player better or do you think it's just fine? You know what? I have to say, judging from a relatively, we talk about this every time we do a video game episode, but I have to I have to double down on this. You know, a relative newbie gamer when it comes to the modern console iterations, right? PlayStation 3 and up. Haven't played a whole lot of things yet, although my catalog is increasing with knockback. And I have to say, the game even worked for me in that regard. A relative newbie green 
gamer in, in so far as I didn't really feel like I needed my handheld. And the other thing I wanted to make sure I told you guys up front was that I took a slightly different approach for this game that I thought would be really fun in that I played it. I didn't even tell Colin this yet. I played it with my son, my 10-year-old son, from the very beginning. We played this game together. Now, because of that sense of exploration and just sort of buddying up and just kind of glee, trying to glean everything out of the game and just having fun with it, free and easy, going slow. We did It did take us 16 hours to beat it. But that being said, I enjoyed all that. Now, I have to say, the, the last boss fight, the Malice fight, is extremely frustrating. Probably the first time I really got frustrated at length for the entirety of the game, though. I have to say, I was really, I really liked... You know, for me, this is a game I've been hearing about for a long time. We talked about legendary status, legions of devotees, well-documented. But the gameplay for me is one aspect of the experience that, again, really surprised me. We've played so many games over the last couple of years for the show that are so detailed and nuanced, offering all this variety and so much to do. So if you think of some of the modern stuff that we've played more recently, the Bioshock games, Horizon Zero Dawn for instance, The Last of Us, Far Cry 3, and a host of others, you know, think about it for a second. You have combat with an insane arsenal at our disposal, crafting, buying, selling, upgrading, leveling up, exploring, modifying, obtaining better weapons, obtaining better armor, classes and skill trees and accessories and stealth mechanics and inventories to manage and so on and so forth. You walk into this game, and the whole experience, as we know, is so pared down and simplified, right? Talk about minimalist. You can get through this entire adventure with the, store, with the sword you start out with from the very beginning of the game, a bow with unlimited ammo, with a, which I call the bottomless quiver, and maybe the occasional lizard tail and mango if you want to replenish your old health and stamina meters. And that's even a luxury. I didn't find that I really had to do that very often. And you basically wield your sword, run, ride your loyal steed, climb, and pull out your bow once in a while. That's what this game, a modern game, is reduced down to. And I really enjoyed that that, for me, left it left me open to sort of put my attention into other aspects into the game. Again, that sort of sense of wonder, being awestruck by the majesty of the landscape, being awestruck by the majesty and the mystery of the Colossi. It's, you know, you talk about simple. For me, it, it, it was simple, pure, clean, and elegant. Everything it's fabled to be, it really worked for me. And it's this awesome thing. And you know that the model wasn't due to, you know, like developer laziness. This approach was specifically crafted to give the gamer a specific less is more experience that totally really did work for me. And I suppose the purpose, again, is to leave the gamer sort of unencumbered by a lot of that bothersome distraction, you know, leaving us to soak in the setting, the story, the mystery, and the mood and the emotion. There's no clamoring over menus or displays or angsting over what to buy or craft next. You've got everything you need, just, you know, just so you can immerse yourself in this world. And I think in the end, feel. You know, and again, oddly, it's funny because even though this game has less characters and less story and less detail and less to do, 
I feel like it really leaves you more room to develop your own sort of emotional resonance and attachment with the game. And, you know, for me, that was really, for me, that was something really new and something really different. And, you know, the game does it, you know, it pulls you through this emotional sort of roller coaster. It's interesting what you said, Kyle, about feeling sympathy for the Colossi early on, because I have to say, I was really sort of distracted by everything that was sort of thrown in front of me. You know, I was distracted by the wonder of where, you know, the setting and being, you know, battle facing off against these, you know, these giant creatures and finding out how to defeat them. I was really awestruck and distracted and preoccupied. And I really didn't develop that sort of something's wrong. Like, am I that sort of feeling of, am I the protagonist or the antagonist until probably two thirds through the game. I think that one fight where you, um, I'll go back and look up his name, but where you have to basically deter the one Colossus with the torch and he's afraid of the fire. And that elicited a little sympathy in me. And then I was like, wait a second, what? It, then I started to catch on of that, you know, the music that plays every time you defeat a Colossus is not triumphant. It's somber. It's melancholy. And then I started to think, then it started to take a whole, the game started to take on a whole new meaning for me and suck me in in a whole nother way. But what's, what's really cool about this game is if you're not seeking some deep meaning and some emotional satisfaction or whatever, if you're just looking for a fun game to play and just have a straight up adventure, it works on that level too. That's what's so cool about this game. I was so selfishly distracted and preoccupied by just how much fun I was having and just how awestruck I was by everything in the game that it didn't even occur to me to feel sympathy or empathy for these creatures. And then when you find out what you what the game is sort of hinting at with its music and with its sort of the, the story that it's slowly you know, feeding you in dribs and drabs and everything. It, 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 there's a, there was a really a journey for me in this game that felt so different than anything else I played. And I think that w- that's what really gave me the appreciation for not only the game and everything I accomplished in the game and the action, but for the experience, if that makes sense. No, it makes perfect sense. I think the intrigue in the so-called forbidden lands comes from what little the game tells you and then how you interpret everything the game doesn't tell you. And I think it's it is interesting. Like you said, the game kind of goes out of its way to alert you that this isn't what you're doing to the Colossi isn't necessarily good. It's one of the few things the game does go out of its way to tell you, not only with musical cues, but when you go back, first of all, you're you're imbued with this black energy and then transported back to the temple. You don't even know how you got back there. Right. And then you watch the statue of the Colossus fall. And crumble. There's nothing good about it. You feel like you're getting closer to a goal, but you don't really know uh, what the goal. Well, you know what the goal is, but you don't know how the goal is going, because one of the things I think the game does that's really cool, too, is mono doesn't move. There's no there's nothing with, until the end of the game. She her, her condition doesn't change like her feet stay in that cross kind of position, her hands in the same position. You're kind of they, they, the game does a really cinematic and interesting thing of kind of dwelling on her face sometimes and you you're kind of waiting for movement but it never comes so it's it's kind of an interesting i i agree with you it's an interesting way to put all these things together the everything about the game is great except for the controls and we'll talk about that in a moment but before we do 
And again, that's my opinion, of course. But Real Radic wrote into us on Patreon. He wants to talk about Wander okay. himself. He says, hey, boys, first time riding in a knockback. Shadow of the Colossus is one of the games I missed but got a chance to experience thanks to the remake. I fell in love with it and was obsessed with the soundtrack for weeks. One of the things that is most striking to me is actually the character of Wander. With very little dialogue in the game, I can see why it might be hard for some people to get attached to him. But to me, I saw Wander as a character with tons of a conviction, willing to give up everything to save Mono. So what do you guys see in Wander? Did you connect with his quest to save Mono by defying the village and helping Dorman, which is he says is a reference to the biblical Nimrod? I'm not smart enough to see that reference. Are there any deep thoughts and meanings that you come up with when thinking about our protagonist? I think the big thing for me, Dag, is uh, how my opinion on Wander kind of changed. He kind of comes off. See, I brought up that Zelda 2 reference before, which I couldn't get away from in my mind. See, you know, it, for people that didn't play the Adventures of Link on NES, the game begins with and, and when you die, you go back to a temple in which Zelda is in a coma and is passed out on this temp on this bed temple thing. And you have to go and try to revive her. So I couldn't help but avoid and I both love that game and I couldn't help but see that. I mean, it's uh, I think somewhat obvious. I don't know if it was intentional, but I think the reference is is there. But nonetheless, in seeing that you feel like, all right, maybe it's a link like character. You're putting into him what you want. He's on this kind of bold quest to save his love or whatever, and he'll do whatever is necessary. But then towards the end of the game, especially when you see Wander kind of crawling on the temple floor after he kills the 16th Colossus, I'm like, wow, Wander's kind of pathetic in a way because he fell for it. He totally got worked and used and we got used as the player, but that was the experience. We couldn't we could just sit there and stare at the screen. Nothing's going to happen. So we have to go through Wander's story. But he kind of got worked. We And and now I know that there's a weird connection, perhaps to Eco and what happens in the end with Mono and the baby with the horns and, and all that. And I'm not deep enough into Team Eco lore to, to know that. I think that they basically confirm that the games are connected. But nonetheless, I, I feel like for me, Wander's character kind of diminishes as you go on. And my sympathy for the Colossi increase. And then when you realize what's really going on at the end, you have you realize that, again, he was manipulated and it kind of makes to me, it makes him look weak. And I'm wondering what you think about Wander. Yeah, you know, it's the Zelda thing, I think, is inevitable. He really feels, at least at the very beginning of the game, he felt like Link to me. A little bit of a voiceless character. You don't know, and of course, purposely, we don't, it's a character shrouded in mystery. We don't know much about him, but at least we do know what he wants. So I understand the conviction. I understand uh, the tenacity. And maybe even you could say the courage. Because he wants to, he's come to this forbidden land, this dangerous place, to sort of parlay with this... I guess seemingly trickster of an entity or a demon, whatever you want to call Dormin, and sort of make a deal with him. And the interesting thing is, talk about tenacity and courage, bravery or conviction or fearlessness, maybe even. Dormin warns him that there's going to be, he'll make this deal with him at great cost. You know, he warns him that there's going to be a great cost to making this deal. And the game really turns out. I don't want to spoil it for anybody. Go play. But it turns out to be a great tragedy in the end because he, he does get to be with his beloved and she is brought back to life. 
And then he's turned to, but he's forced to spend eternity with her or whatever you want to say as a, as an infant. So it's, it's really ironic. And I love that little sort of classic tragic twist at the end where it's like, yeah, Wander got what he wanted. He's going to spend, he's, Mono's alive and he's going to be with her, but he's going to be this demon infant. He's not going to be the Wander that he thought he was going to be, you know, spending time with Mono. So it was really interesting. And, you know, Wander, of course, is the player surrogate. But I think that's really interesting when, and probably not done enough in the medium of video games where this playable protagonist, again, sort of turns antagonist, or at least you have to question it. He'll go, the, the basic thing with this character is he's tragic, he's sort of selfish in a way, but he's also relatable because he's just wants to, he wants to bring back a loved one that he lost. And we could all relate to that. But what ends up happening is Dormian says, okay, well, here's what you're going to do. I'm going to bring back, I'm going to help you resurrect your fallen beloved here. But here's what you're going to do. You're going to go, you're going to go scour the land for the 16 Colossi and you're going to slay each one of them. Not telling him that, oh, by the way, the 16 parts of me are imprisoned in each one of these Colossi. Once each one is slain, a piece of me will be freed. And then when all 16 are taken care of, I'm going to be able to manifest and come back to, you know, come back to full power, sort of like a Sauron type of deal. Again, Lord of the Rings, right? So he's a really, he's a really interesting character because I feel from the beginning, unlike a Zelda game, you never know. Link is sort of purposely designed so the player could impart themselves into the into the character of Link. That's why he's not a very interesting character because he's he's like Mario, he's a player surrogate. But Wander is interesting because from the beginning you know that this character is making a deal with the devil and you want to see how it's going to play out and you want to learn more about him, his relationship with Mano, his relationship with these people who are we find out are pursuing him. He, you know, we know the sword is stolen. Eventually, we find out the sword is stolen. He's sort of on the lamb. He's a very interesting character, even though he's got all that moral gray area. And that's another reason why we just we double down on wanting to know more about the character. In a way, it, it feels really strange. The other interesting thing about him is he could be really young. I would I haven't seen much written about this, but he could be to me. I don't know if you would agree, Kyle. Anywhere from fourteen to 19 years old. I mean, he looks almost, he looks like a cherub. I mean, he can't be any older than 19. He's a, he's a young, he's a young man, a boy. And you also get the, the sense that he's a really skillful rider. He's a really skillful archer, but is he sort of a, is he a hunter? Is he of some sort of nobility? Is he a young budding warrior? That's just not very skilled with the sword yet. I don't know. I I don't I get the feeling that Wander is sort of of noble lineage and that he's kind of going against everything to go and sort of you know rescue his betrothed. The other interesting thing I found out and we didn't get to Mono yet is that the prop we find out early in the game that the prophecy is that she was basically put to death because she had she she was sort of prophesized to have a dark fate that something evil was going to come out of her being alive. Hence she had to be put to death. And 
the whole thing was that this whole thing manifested itself anyway as a result of her being put to death. That all of these things came to pass, that Wander encroached into the Forbidden Lands, that he resurrected the demon, that, you know, Mono was brought back to life, but then Wander was changed into this other sort of demon child. This whole prophecy came to pass, even though the whole motivation was to stop this from happening, which is really dark stuff, which gets you thinking that the Dormian character put the wheels in motion to all of these things. The other thing you have to realize is Dormian is this sort of disembodied voice, this sort of a dark entity or this dark power. He's obviously of great power, right? But he's he has no physical form. So he's using Wander to act as his physical self, to act as his sword hand, if you work. He, he can't go and slay these Colossus himself. But the interesting thing is Dormin knows he's with you. He's your advisor. Not only does he task you on each mission, that he doesn't, he sort of dispatches you on every mission, but also he helps you with one or two hints during the battle. So this is a really omniscient, powerful character. He just has no physical form. So he's using, you know, think of this ancient Pandora-like trickster. He's using Wander in order to achieve his own ends. It's very, very interesting stuff. But you have to go through the game and you have to kind of be in for paying attention to those little clues in order to get all that. But I think it's really interesting. And I think it's it even leaves you with enough mystique where it's to me, this is this is great storytelling. It's not spoon feeding you thing. It's 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 bringing you along on a journey. And if you're in for that style of journey, you're going to get something out of it. If you're in for just a fun platforming boss rush game, you're going to get that out of it. Maybe you get both out of it. Yeah, it's well, I think you answered one of your questions from earlier and what you were saying, which is Dorman's knowledge of the Colossi indicates that they were built and that he seems to understand what their weaknesses are, like their inherent weaknesses and stuff. So the other thing that I think is interesting is that he you said he has no physical form, which is true, but he's also locked to that territory some somehow. Right. He's banished. They 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 destroy the bridge, which I think is interesting, you know in order to make sure that none of them come across it. But you would assume Dorman being some sort of supernatural creature or whatever entity would be able to just get out of there, but he can't. So there's a lot of implication just in in the the, um, the almost vacancy of the story, which I think is great. And Wander is an interesting character. I, I don't know. Whatever he is, is the same as what that that guy is that comes in at the end. Eamon or whatever his name is. Yeah. Because they have the same kind of cloak on. It's like the same. I think it's a similar same design, you know, like a tunic kind of thing. Good point. That's a really good point. And Eamon says, oh, it is it is you. So there is some familiarity. I don't know how how much they they know each other or what their exact relationship is. But there is some familiarity when Eamon shows up. He knows Wander took the sword, and that was probably the tip-off that something was not right. But that's a great point about the garb. I didn't even notice that. And the other thing is, is that, and I know again, I don't, I only read about this, but is I guess in eco lore something catastrophic happens, like some sort of curse where the boy is born with the horns, and eco obviously has the horns. So there's something, there's some connection there, but I'm not going to presume to know what that is. Dig, we've got a long time without talking about the act of playing the game. Yes. And I want to talk about that now. Connor L. wrote into us on Patreon. He says, well, boys, 
So I played this game three times, twice on PS3 and once on PS4, and I have to preface by saying it's a good game, better than most. It excels in areas others faulted. It is a good game, but alas, the difficulty in talking about this game comes from the fans. This game is clunky, clunky like an N64 controller clunky. It completely skipped the streamlining step. I will never understand the overarching goat status it's found that's found online. Most of the bosses are cripplingly easy, and I found any difficult or length is all down to the poorly laid out mechanics. But for Colin, who's got a great insight into the online world of video game criticism, what can you see that people so forthrightly love about this game? Because I can't see it. Love all you do. And Colin, it's nice to hear you're getting on well in your new home from a fan since beyond. Thank you, Connor. Thank you, dude. For writing in and for your kind words. So, like I said early on, this was the downfall for me trying this game on the PS2 back in the day. And something that still really kind of haunted me on this in this new version, although in going between the different control schemes, you can see that they definitely made it better to me. I just don't really understand. Again, I said earlier that the horse thing with aggro sometimes not listening, but I'm pretty sure that the game just doesn't. Doesn't consistently read your input and in any way. And I don't really understand why that's fun. Remember, we talk about Zelda sometimes, Breath of the Wild, very contentious game for me compared to a lot of other people, which some consider it the best game of all time. And I often talk about, well, what about some of the things the game does that that isn't good? Like, what about the, you know, degradation of weapons and and how much I just hate that? Because no matter what, unless you're playing like a really hardcore, like, let's say, CRPG or something, you're not really in it for that and that sucks it's not fun and the same thing with like aggro not listening to every control right the same thing with like not tying movement on the horse to the analog stick to begin with how about the really rampantly bad camera the camera gets caught swings not good from a technical level on the ps2 version there's incredible lag sometimes which is crazy considering there's nothing going on in the game with the exception of the Colossus, which obviously is an incredible animation strain on the PS2. But just things like this, where I call these things out, but whether it's it all seems to do with control, like sometimes you press the square, he just doesn't hold his his sword up. Then you press square and he holds it up and then he stabs it really quickly. And then you, you press, you know what I mean? It's like I, I just never felt like I was. It felt like everything I was telling the, the game to do was nothing more than a suggestion. And. In a way, it reminds me of Young Horse's game Octodad, which I fucking hate. I hate that game. And the reason I hate it is because it's all about how bad it is to play. And I'm like, well, that's not fun. No matter how funny the idea is of a dad like disguising himself as an or an octopus disguising himself as a human dad. It's funny as hell, <laughs> but it's not fun to play. Right. It's not fun to play. And this game to your point, at the end of the game, I was like, this sucks. I remember I screamed at the TV. I'm like, this isn't fun. And it's such a it's such a shame to, f- to say that and feel that way at the very end, you know. And so I had a lot of it wasn't that the game was hard. I died a few times or whatever, but. It's not that the game's hard, it's just that, like, I don't understand how the here's here's my stance. Let me let me bake it down like this. Sure, sure. I don't understand how this game couldn't be better served with a more coherent and more reliable control scheme. In other words, what does this control scheme, how does it serve the game and how does making it better not serve the game? And that can't be satisfactorily answered for me. 
So even with this remake from Blue Point, I think they did a, did a great job. It's still not great to play. And I think it says a lot about all the trappings in the game that I still kind of hold it in high regard now. But you can't put a game in the in the top echelon of games of all time if you can't play it properly. And I know that people will argue with the get good stuff and all of that, but come on guys. Like I <laughs> get good. Is we, such I've a played funny many games. You've out there played many games. Really think about why this is and, and how even 22 year old Colin in 2007 knew that there was something wrong with this game through that lens. And I just find it frustrating because if the game felt better then you would really have one of the all time greats and I, I think that that's the problem so I'm, I'm curious what did you think about playing it well you know I totally get everything you're saying Carl for sure for me it broke down this way there certainly is a cost for entry with getting acclimated to the controls in this game and I have to admit I was a little worried at first the first hour or maybe even two or so were a little it was a little rough going there for a little bit but I have to say, once it clicked, and you know, I, I will say the first two, maybe the certainly the first Colossus battle, maybe the second one as well, were a little touch and go because you're still really getting, you know, you're really getting acquainted still with the controls and they are odd. But I have to say, after an hour or two, it clicked and I never really had another problem again, again, until that last Colossus fight, until that Malice fight. Which was just, I think, I think really the platforms were just too narrow for that boss fight. Not only did you have to ascend to great heights and do a lot of climbing, but which was fine. Because by that point, you should be, you know, you should be pretty acquainted with the controls. But that last fight was frustrating. But I have to say, throughout the whole thing, you, you just become, you become used to it. You know, even the camera, the camera is certainly wonky, but... I found that it was workable. You know, I found that they weren't the most fluid controls, but I found that it was it was workable. You had said something really interesting about the aggro thing. And I was worried about this because I heard about it before I even played it. And I thought it was a very interesting idea to have this sort of horse character. You really need aggro to traverse the lands because there's so much space to travel over. You know, it's so vast. The Forbidden Lands are so vast that if you go on foot, it's going to be way too slow. Like, you need him for big chunks of the game. You really need to have him to get anywhere in a timely fashion. And I heard about the thing where they developed this mechanic where the horse doesn't always readily listen. There's a little stubbornness built in. But one thing, interestingly enough, and I thought that was going to bother me. I really thought that aspect of the game was going to bug me. But it turned out to be sort of satisfying. And here's why. Because once you get aggro, first of all, you understand. You have to call him a few times. You got to you gotta gotta zig and zag. You gotta learn the patterns of it to make it less frustrating. But once you get, I mean, I can't think of a more beautiful thing in video games than getting onto aggro, breaking off finally at a nice clip, at a nice sprint, and that sort of rear three-quarter view of you sprinting on your horse through that gorgeous, majestic landscape. Just the right amount of motion blur on his tail. It is one of the most gorgeous moving images I've ever seen in a video game. And it was sort of acted at, and this could be the art nerd, this could be the animation nerd in me, but it was such a wonderful payoff 
for making that horse do what you want to do when you get off at a clip and you get to witness that for a little bit. I mean, it's just, and then holding up the sword with the beam of light, it's just gorgeous. Again, it harkened back to like riding the elves riding out to meet the orcs in Lord of the Rings or something. Just an epic moment. And I think every frustrating mechanic in this game, and again, I won't claim that these are the most fluid controls in all the world because we've played really fluid, you know, games with that sport, really fluid controls on the show. But I found that it was workable. I found that it was acceptable and that there was always sort of a payoff that I almost rage quit fighting malice because again, and that plays into what our listener was saying too. A lot of these Colossus fights are relatively simple. I think purposely. So I think once you figure out, you know, once you kind of arrive at the puzzle, aspect of it and figure out what your approach is going to be, what your strategy is going to be. And you could tailor it a certain way. That's where any kind of frustration would end because it's just relatively easy for the most part. There are a couple of challenges in there, I would say, but for the most part, they're easy. So when you get to malice, it's properly frustrating and then he has to carry you around on his hands to his various sigils, his various weaknesses all over his body and stuff. But I really didn't get that frustration, at least that really prolonged frustration until that last boss fight. For me, it really worked. And I have to say, and I'm not I'm not get gooding you guys out there, and I'm not get gooding you, Kyle, of course, but like even Graydon was fine with it. In fact, there was a moment of time in in the first third of the game where he was sort of hogging the controls and I was just letting him run with it because I knew he was enjoying it. And he was better than me at it for a while until, you know, halfway through the game I sort of had to take control. But he was he was doing fine. And that got me thinking, too, because I know how obtuse the controls could be in the game. That got me thinking, too, like, wow, like Graydon's pretty good at video games, which is like an actual, you know, an additional prize to doing the game with him, which was really a lot of fun. I finally found a game that was appropriate for him. I, I don't think the ending was the best for Graydon. I don't you know, once aggro falls, you know, I had to remind him that Agro's going to aggro's going to live. Don't get upset and all that kind of stuff. But that was an extra treat was playing with my son. But I have to say, he even did he even did a fine job at it. I'm trying to think if there was any other obtuse mechanics in the game. That one boss fight, that sort of sand snake boss. I'm gonna go back. I wrote all the boss uh the boss names down. They that was a really that was a weird one because you had to control the camera and sort of shoot into this thing's eye as he's pursuing you, not realizing that if you take the hand off of your riding aggro at the time, not realizing if you take your hand off the controller, aggro is still, you know, the camera will maintain that view and you could kind of mess with your bow for a second. That was tough. And then there was a weird, that weird departure with the one boss fight with the, um, the Celosia boss fight where the Titan is afraid of the fire, where you have to pick up a torch, which felt like a departure. That felt like a sloppy one-off because that doesn't exist anywhere in the game where you have to, all of a sudden you have to know to pick up this stick and stick it into the flame and scare off the boss. So that that seemed like a little bit of a bridge too far. It was interesting addition, but it just seemed sloppy. There was no warning that that was going to come. There was no sort of a ramp up, education wise to know that that was going to exist in a bo- you know in one of the boss fights but for the most part I thought it was really cohesive and the controls fell again felt right for the game to me so the the guy you're or the classes you're talking about I think is dirge who's the 10th Colossus yes and that's dirge. one of the that's one of the the great fights in the game too and I I, I agree with you it was that was fun just in turning around and 
shooting the eye and figuring it out. I always liked figuring out what the, it, it's a puzzle and I'm not really good at puzzle games. So I felt like this was a really satisfying game for me from that perspective because I get so frustrated with games with puzzles like and figuring things out. Like I, I just like playing a game and doing things in games and stuff, but I don't like sitting there and being like, well, what's the what's the what's the secret here? And, you know, I, I'm really, I, hate, I hate that shit. So or typically I do. So it was interesting in this game that I that I wasn't bothered by it. But um, so I, I, we got a quite I mean, we haven't talked about the class I as individuals yet. I'd like to do that now. Aaron Murray wrote into us and said, hey, guys, great topic choice. Hey, Aaron. this game just sticks with you. And it's in its simplicity that it shines. Hardly any dialogue, no massive story arc, no items or level progression. Normally, these would be red flags for me, but this game just works. I got to ask, though, what was your most memorable Colossus to go up against? For me, it was the Avian. Keep up the great work, lads. Avian is the what one is this? This is the, it's the bird is five. one. Five, yeah, number five. Five, right? It's the fifth one. That is a great choice. Awesome. Uh, I I called that that one. I also like uh, Hydras a lot, which is the electric eel one, which is the uh, seventh one. And let's see what else I got here. And then I I called out uh, Basarin, which is the turtle one. The reason I wanted to call that one out was because. I really like the um, the difference in sizes in the Colossi. We talk a lot about that. We think Shovel Knight does that really well with the different knights and how they're all big, like, you know, Frost Knight's really big and uh, Tinker Knight's really small. And you see that in Mega Man, obviously, too. Frost Man is huge in Mega Man 8, while someone like Clown Man, I'm Clown Man, would be <laughs> uh, really small. Was that Clown so, Man just I, in your room? Like yeah, that, that was. Yeah, he just kind of <laughs> came on through real quick. So. But yeah, I, I really dig the Colossi designs generally. I know that's kind of a cop out, but I love these creatures that seem to be created or they have at least this stone metal armor, each of them, and they all seem to fit together. It's really neat in that in that sense. I love that. I love really all the designs, but I think that what I really dug was the scale. You had like really small, quick ones. You had huge ones. That would make the original game chug or whatever. And I love the way that they all dealt with the environments as well. Actually, we had someone write in here. Do I have it? Do I do I have it here still? No, I don't think I do. Someone wrote in. Might have been Phil Crone wrote in and said that um, Pelagia, which is the 12th Colossus, the one with like the weird teeth thing on top of it. Oh, yeah. Crown. That one really confused him. But I was proud of myself because I understood that one immediately before even Darman or Dorman. Um tries to give you a hint or whatever. And I was like, oh, I get it. So I like the way some of them interact with the environments, how you have to get them to like fall. There's that one really cool one where you're jumping from platform to platform uh, late in the game and the platforms are all falling and you're like trying to stay ahead of it. Uh, The boss designs are just really immaculate from that standpoint. But this is where you and I disagree because I feel like the moment to moment gameplay is so disrupted by the poor control scheme that it interrupts your own ability to create a moment in the game. Like you're underneath the the Colossus, you're ready to jump on its fur and grab on the, the, the horse is, you know, going and you got your sword out and then you press the triangle bu- or you press a button and an arrow just doesn't doesn't listen. So the moment's ruined, you know, and it's like, but this is a video game. Yes. And so when I press the triangle button or the X button, it should do the same thing every time I have a big problem with that design philosophy. And I feel like the game just generally outside of aggro is just it's just not responsive enough. It just doesn't cut it. And. I, again, I just don't understand why making it more arcadey, even in a sense, would disrupt the 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 impact and the power of the game. I just can't 
escape that. But let me throw it over to you. What what are some of the colossi that stood out to you? You know, I love. First of all, I love. It's odd because it was unexpected to me. Very interesting aesthetic, as you said, with the stone and the fur. A very unique look. I wasn't expecting that. I was expecting straight up monsters. Think you know titans from Greek mythology. But again, you know that's what God of War is for, supposedly. So we'll get there. For this, I was I was surprised by the aesthetic at first and put off by it a little bit. I was expecting because the classes the colossi are part partly almost robotic and partly organic. I wasn't expecting them to be so much on the side of automatons, you know, very robotic in nature in some cases. But also, interestingly enough, organic in many ways too, because you know, some of them are covered with moss and vines. Some even have trees growing on them or have birds nesting in them and stuff. You know, you sort of get the sense that not only are they massive, like you said, but this ancient, lumbering, slow moving, in many ways, majestic and mysterious creatures that are roaming the land. And here was the interesting thing for me with the Colossus before I get into specific ones, Kyle, with the Colossi. This was weird. And this was part of the, in a, in a good way. Part of the thing that kept you guessing in the game, at least for me, about how you're supposed to feel, because some of the Colossi, some of the 16 feel like sentinels. You know, they're wielding massive weapons and they're apparently ready for battle. Right. And we'll talk about those. And then others seem like just gigantic beasts, you know, placid, content to simply roam the land, maybe even docile and gentle in some way. And then others are they they sort of fall in between the two somewhere they're aggressive but they, you know they they seem they seem peaceful but almost like wild animals they can be aggressive they'll counter if you do attack so you have like kind of these three sub categories of these colossi they all act differently and they all seem to have a different sort of a you know they also some of them seem like they're tailored for fighting and some of them seem like they're just they just live there. And that was very strange to me that you had that sort of separation. Again, keeps you on your toes with guessing how you're supposed to feel about slaying, confronting and slaying these things, which was very interesting for me. And the other thing is they have very, you find out that they have these very passive faces. You know, they're almost devoid of emotion, like they're wearing masks. You can't, their expressions are neutral. They're not friendly necessarily, but they're not aggressive, at least outwardly so, uh, or from the outset either. You know, it makes them feel slightly more like organic robots, which I think was a really, really interesting choice and something I haven't really seen before, that these things could range from seemingly docile and gentle to violent and aggressive, and you never knew what you were going to get, which also makes for a really exciting, you know, every time you encounter this, go into a new boss battle, you don't really know what to expect. That's exciting. And then how are you going to tailor that approach, that puzzle-like approach to beating them each time? That makes it, that makes a lot, that made it for me really a lot of fun. Now I preferred, I tended to prefer the sort of humanoid bipedal Colossus the best. Valus, the first humanoid, uh, the that lumbering giant that wields the massive club. And I think uh, Colossus number three was Gaius. He's another man. Oh yeah. He was the one that was sort of stalking up on that massive floating disc above the lake. And he has like the concrete, the giant stone, stone sword 
that he'll swing it down at you and then it gets stuck in the ground and you have to climb up his sword. That was really cool. And then Argus, I think the second to last, the penultimate boss, was another bipedal humanoid colossus. Oh yeah, he looked like a giant ape. He looked like a colossal ape and he had sort of a sword, another multi-bladed sword or a hatchet of some kind made of stone that he would swing at you and if you went up on the bridge, he would knock down the bridge. I really liked, I really wanted to face those ones that felt like you know two-legged giants like humanoid style giants i think those were the most fun for me although other boss fights were a lot of fun and also something that they painted a, a few different um challenges for you as well but yeah those those sort of tall those tallest humanoid style colossi were just i mean that was that's really what i came for and then finding out later on that you know, in retrospect, that these were just vessels to imprison the, the various parts of this troublesome entity, and the fact that you're slaying them because you you were be you were basically cajoled into doing it. You know, you were basically deceived into doing that, and then it just brings up this whole moral thing around the Colossi too, where if you made these Greek mythology styled monsters, you know, a Hydra and a Cerberus and a whatever you know all the all the the ancient mythological beasts that are angry and violent and all that kind of stuff you wouldn't be left with that same feeling of like should i have done that you know and also that leaves me thinking colin people may people that are really steeped in the lore of this game may know this but i get this sense that the colossus have been there for a long time and whether they served as these protectors of keeping Dormine from manifesting again or whether they were something else in the past now leveraged for a new purpose. I'm not sure, but it just seems like I want to think that they were just a part of this place at one point. Maybe they just lived like any other creature, like one of the lizards or one of the doves or whatever. And then they were sort of optioned for this task that, you know, led them to a tragic ends, which is really another interesting thing about them. But I lo- in the end, I really, I w- at first I was disappointed that they weren't those more organic monsters, you know, Godzilla-styled monsters, but I love the fact, in retrospect, that they were designed this way because it feels like really nothing else. I don't know. It's, it's a unique choice because it's so muted, the designs, you know? I also couldn't help but notice the similarity between the masks that the people wore and the w- there, there seems to be a coherent sort of look to everything. Again, goes goes back to the to the vacancy of the story, which I love. Dave, you brought up Agro before in terms of his death. Now, you betrayed yourself here a little bit because you basically, I know now you spoiled the ending because before you played it because uh, you you should think Agro is dead when he falls off yes. the bridge, I think. Yes, yes. So so as as usual, Dave can't help himself. But <laughs> at, at that moment, I thought he was dead and it was really harrowing. Uh, Barrett Boswell wrote into us and said, hey, Colin and Dagan, this game has many powerful moments, but I want to inquire as to your feelings at the moment of Agro's death. I typically am not affected much by video game characters deaths, but with Agro being your only companion in this vast world, him falling with the collapsing bridge after saving you elicited much sadness from me. How did this moment strike you all when you first experienced it? Thanks, fellas, and happy Thanksgiving to you. Well, happy belated. I did add ask for these questions a while ago to Barrett's credit. So Barrett's not in a time warp of some sort. <laughs> Good. But uh, I'm disappointed that you kind of cleared that up for Graydon because I thought that that was a really impactful moment 
and I thought he was dead. And so it was kind of a nice little telegraph from the game, too, because it was telling you it was almost over and that you won't need him anymore. So I thought that that was a really interesting way. Not not you knew you were going to the 16th Colossus, but it was telling you pretty immediately that you were done, that you weren't going to need him to jump on one of the Colossi. For instance, I did love the when you need when you really did need him, especially in the sand Colossus fight when you needed to like run up next to him. There's so many cool moments like that. But I did like some of the animations with him. I was listening to something uh, interview that I think Kenji Kondo, who's the producer, did. Uh, I'm sorry, Kenji Kaido. Uh, did where he was saying that for eco they used real horse model like horses as models and then in this one they actually didn't and so the animations i think are a little more are are not rooted in reality this is proto motion capture and stuff like that but i i, I did like um i did like that they brought him back because it, it, it was like a, a small feel-good thing but some of the animations of him like limping along very sad, like obviously he has a broken leg. It's the same thing of when you get knocked off of him and he's like limping and trying to get back on his feet. A lot of emotion there. So I was really sad by it. But talk to me about when he died and how Graydon reacted and, and all that, because I'm surprised that you had to clarify that for him. Yeah, I would have. I think if I hadn't, I don't know how I spoiled that moment for myself. I didn't spoil much of this game. I, I honestly didn't this time. But yeah, that I saw beforehand. I might have went and looked at the if there were multiple endings or something. But I have to say, I think I would have been crestfallen if that was a surprise to me, you know, while playing. And I saw how it affected Graydon. And I, yeah, for whatever reason, I was just caught. Maybe I was over coddling, but I was like, you know, he's he's going to come back. And supposedly it's not even with a broken leg. It's just a, it's just a sprain. Uh, devotees have have explained. So so Wander actually survives. I mean, aggro after, you know, survives, but the the thing about the most compelling thing about this character is that you realize once he's lost, even though it's so deep into the game that this is your only companion, helper and friend in the entire affair. There's no NPCs in this game. There's no shop owners. There's no one. There's no towns. There's no one giving you tips. There's no one offering you aid. It's you, a deal with some demon and your your one faithful, loyal companion in aggro and that's it so when you lose aggro it's it's extra emotional you know one thing i forgot kyle and i meant to do this and i completely forgot was i wanted to see if you could call him after or actually aggro is supposed to be a girl character i found out that ueda has actually said that but some fans have dug in their heels and even though ueda has gone on record saying aggro is a she they still say it's a he i'm not sure where that polarizing argument comes from but supposedly it's a she but i don't i was wondering if you could speak to that did you try to call i didn't even think about it to call her after no she I, falls. I, it's, that would have been interesting no i didn't like during the argus fight could have been ex, I, I didn't could have been so yep. tragic you know so just add to that that tragedy you, know, you could do things where right in the, the malice fight you could do things later in the game where during the ending, you could you could cry different ways as the baby if you hit the button buttons a certain way, which sort of confirms that that infant is Wander. Things like that, you know. So there there might have been things in the game. I, I there's listeners out there yelling at us right now that know the answer to this, but I that's something I really had wished I did. But yeah, you know, Agro is is Wander's only physical friend and ally in the entire quest. Again, you have Dormin coming in and chiming in with tips during each Colossus fight besides dispatching you on each mission. But he, but Agra is the only one that's there for you. And 
It's also really interesting how big they made that horse because it makes, I think it doubles down on making Wander feel young. And to me, he really does. There's certain points of the game where I'm like, wow, this kid can't be older than 15 or 16 years old. And I think the design of Agro just even adds to that, which I thought was a cool little aesthetic touch that they did. Dake, someone had, well, we had brought up earlier the, the fruit and the lizards and all this. I really want to talk about this as we wrap up because Colin Sparling wrote into us about this, but I'm curious about your take because the game doesn't give us much information as we've been saying. So he says, hey guys, Shadow is easily one of my favorite games of all time and one of my favorite game soundtracks of all time. How long did it take you to find out that you could find fruit and lizards to boost your stamina and health? It took me until my second time playing the PS3 remaster to figure this out. So I got it. So there's a couple of interesting things and I, I think people will be I don't know, maybe maybe they've had similar experiences with games that don't give you a lot of information, but so I picked I saw a lizard walking across and I like beat him to death and then I picked him up and I didn't even realize anything happened, but I got a trophy. So I was like, all right, well, something happened. And then I saw I went down this dead end and I saw these fruit tree, this fruit hanging from a tree. So I shot them down and I ate them and I got another trophy. And then I did see that my health went up. But I like that the game doesn't really tell you anything about that. And this is where an interesting thing comes from. So that yellow in, in the remake, anyway, it's a yellow circle. It's a meter in the bottom right side of the HUD. That's basically, I guess, your stamina. But I got to say, Dagan, that because the game tells you so little, I read that as the Colossus, Colossus's anger or hostility towards you until the game was over and I was reading about it. So... The, in other words, the game told us so little yes. that I interpreted it's the same thing because you, it really only comes in when you are grappling on and jumping around or whatever. And it makes sense when you think about it in hindsight. I don't know what I was thinking, but what I was looking at the meter was like, it's like I'm jumping on this beast. And so he's getting angrier and angrier and angrier when that meter lets out. Then he throws me off of him. That is so interesting. That's what happens in the animation, just in the reverse. So the game I got there in the end, it's the same thing just from the other end. And so the game told you so little that that's how I read that meter the entire game, which had nothing. It doesn't make any sense because I guess it's kind of like Castlevania where the enemy meter is always up there, but it doesn't activate until you get to the boss. I kind of read it that way where it's just always there and then and then it activates or whatever. So maybe embarrassing, but that's kind of how I read it. Did you how did you figure everything out with the well, I guess you ruined it for yourself. So did you read about it? (laughs) Well, first of all, I love that. I love that you thought that because, yeah, it it really illustrates that this game really doesn't hold your hand. I mean, you really have to figure these things out. The thing with me is like I probably cashed in and was a little more opportunistic with the game because I've been I've it's just been around for a long time and I probably read about it or saw a YouTube video on it or something. So I probably had a little bit of a head start going into this and knowing eventually we were going to cover it was on our knockback list. So I probably just went in with a little, a little bit more knowledge, just having seen things and read things in the past. One really interesting thing that I didn't figure out myself that I had read somewhere that somebody had ascertained was that it's really interesting. And this is so cool. And I don't know. I still don't know if this proves out or if this was intended, but if you look at the game, the boss life meter is blue. And your Wander's life meter is red, which is usually the opposite mm. in games, right? The antagonist's life meter is usually red, and your life meter is a is a lighter, you know, color that would denote good, that would denote the protagonist, and it's the opposite. 
which is really clever. If that was intended, that's one yeah. of those little things that's just like a stroke of genius that you just have to appreciate, which I think Definitely. is so, which is so cool. And you know, the thing, the thing with the controls and the, and the, you know, the very slim HUD and all that kind of stuff, I really didn't have, I really didn't have any problems with it. It all went, you know, pretty smoothly. I think I figured it out in a timely fashion. The fruit thing seemed obvious to me because they, it's one of the rare things that you see growing at all. And, you know, maybe it's the modeling, maybe it was the, you know, the beveling on the edges or the color or something that seemed obvious to me. The lizard thing I read about the lizard thing. Now I, I didn't bother with either thing and I didn't bother with trying to get any of the other extraneous weapons or items either in the game. I kept the experience very pure and simple. And if I had more time, I would have loved to had started with the PS2 version so I could compare not only for graphic purposes, but more again for the controls and to see what the purists are all about day one, you know, 2005, 2006ers and all that kind of stuff. I would have done that. I would have used my time that way. But no, I didn't really have any trouble, but I also didn't go to any great lengths to do anything extra. I found myself very rarely, unless I unless I was looking for a Colossus and I wandered in into some little pocket with a mango tree, with a fruit tree, I would shoot a couple down or whatever, or gather a lizard tail if I was stumbling around looking for something. But I never went out of my way to do any of those extra things. And it is interesting that even those simple mechanics are extraneous. You really don't need to do them. It really talks to, again, speaks to the the minimalism of the game. But yeah, I, did, I just found that, I found everything, again, after that initial learning curve, after that, initial cost for entry i found everything pretty you know pretty self-explanatory yeah it's there are other collectibles as well in the game i i do like that you don't need them it's it it is it does create another point of dissonance for me though where it's like the game is friendly enough to heal you and in fact you auto heal no matter what you can even expedite it and basically never die uh in the game you can expedite it by crouching but then again with the, the weird controls but I did like kind of the obtuseness of the fruit and I only encountered like a couple of the fruit trees. So I guess I wasn't really looking too hard and I would see lizards all the time, but I just never really bothered with them except for if I happened to be on foot or something. But I was the same way. You didn't really need them. So it was kind of it, it, I kind of appreciate that because, first of all, I'm so OCD when I play games <laughs> that I if 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 there was like some sort of map, well, there is a map in the game. But if the, if they were really tracking that stuff and all, I would have been totally this would have been a whole different experience in the forbidden lands for me. But uh, Dig, I like this question from Derek O, who said, if you were a Colossus, where would your weak spot be? Oh. Where hey would now. your weak spot be? My, mine would be in my, my heart. Just get me right in the oh, heart. Oh, that's adorable. Isn't it nice? That is really adorable. Mine would be my weenus. Whoa. Hey. Oh. oh. I mean, that's where He's I got- went first. I mean, that's really where I... Does someone have a, does one of the Colossi have a weenus weakness? <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think so. But I feel like I would remember that. But They're androgynous. They they are. They are androgynous. <laughs> now, Dave, the final question I have here from Patreon, uh, a good way to wrap up, I think, from my cousin Vinny. He wrote in and said, oh, hey, C&D, what does it all mean? The game, the story, what does it all mean? So what is the purpose of this game? What is the meaning of the game? 
Well, you know, one thing I heard, Carl, and this is a very simple way to put it. I didn't come up with this myself, but I read this somewhere that the game all comes down to it all boils down to holding on or letting go, which is very interesting. If that's Mm. all this is about, like that's a key mechanic in the game is holding on to those colossi for dear life as they're trying to shake you off and you're trying to, you know, plunge your sword into their hide that and the whole thing with just letting go or holding on. In fact, you know, with Wander and Mono and Wander holding on to his lost beloved and trying to hold on and should he have let go and that whole thing. I like to think that was the whole symbolism for the meaning of the game. But what do you what about you? What do you think? I think that on the I think the game is about love in a high end way. I think it's about betrayal in some way, but I also think it's about leaping before you look. I think wander. I can't help but see like some sort of frivolity and wander in terms of how quickly he enters into this compact, how desperate he is seemingly to enter into the compact and how he doesn't really think about what he's doing and, and everything he's doing seems to be bad. And this single-minded focus to revive this woman in this land he can never now leave and all of this. I, he's quite tragic in that way, but that's what I think the game's about is, um, is certainly love and betrayal, I think, and, and manipulation. But also, I can't help but, again, see the haste and um, the poor decision-making on Wander's part. I don't know if that's a popular way to see it, but... I just feel like he doesn't really th- the game has so so little so little exposition that you're pretty certain he has no idea what he's really doing. Right. So, yeah, absolutely. It, I think that's very well said. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you do get you definitely do get that sense that he's in over his head. He's just extremely brave or like you said, desperate. So it, it fun. I'm glad that we we chose this game to play or you did. Is, is there anything that we didn't say? We the one thing I do want to call out real quick, I I thought I put a question in here about it, but I didn't. But just want to call out the soundtrack, which is exceptional oh, as well. God, it's and so good, dude. Um, I think that sometimes it's a little weird, like it it doesn't sound like a video game. There's music in the game where I'm like, this kind of sounds like I'm watching like a, a Who Done It or something. I don't know some some weird like weird Hollywood esque m- music that didn't seem quite. Uh, symmetrical with the, the action on screen. But I, again, as we said earlier in the episode, I do like how the music su- is the really greatest suggestion that you're not doing something wrong, right. You're doing something wrong. And so I think it's so important to this experience. I, I often talk about how I play games often with podcasts or music in the background, unless there's like a story or exposition that I'm listening to. And I, I, I just listen to the game the entire time. So what did you uh, make of the soundtrack before we uh, wrap up? Well, it was, you know, I really, I mean, really ambient, emotional, stirring, orchestral soundtrack, like any good game has. But it's interesting that the game remains silent for as you're traversing the levels, as you're traversing the Forbidden Lands, and as you're, you know, in the, spending time in the shrine and everything. And really, the generally, the music only comes in for the cutscenes and the Colossus encounters, which is a really interesting choice to punctuate those moments. It makes sense, but. The one thing, the one striking thing, if I had to boil it down to one aspect of the music, is that sort of stirring refrain. Again, after you defeat each Colossus, the giant falls, sort of plummets to the earth, and Wander is overtaken by those black tendrils, and then whisked back to Mono's altar. You know, he's whisked back to the shrine of, of worship. That music... 
as you're defeating your enemy, again, it's not triumphant. It's melan- It's just sort of melancholy, somber refrain. And I feel like an idiot for not getting it until two thirds or so through the game that, you know, something is not right. You know what I mean? I was enjoying myself so much that I didn't even realize maybe in my subconscious, I realized that something was really off. And that's where I was saying that the game, that music really imparts that, helps impart that emotional turn with the game where it's like, yeah, I'm doing it. I'm defeating these, 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 you know, giant enemies and look how powerful I am until the fact, you know, it, it registers like what I'm doing may be, you know, questionable from a moral standpoint. This is what I'm is what I'm doing right. What is this sort of somber interlude that's playing? And it's so, I've never seen that in a video game before where it's like you if you were more aware than I was, you should definitely be aware from the outset that something is not right. You know, and the other thing besides the music, I have to say something about the setting that I thought of early in the game. And obviously I was wrong about this, but in the setting, we talked about the setting at length, but in the beginning of the game, I thought that everything, you know, we talked about that sort of ethereal veil over everything, that grayness or that washed out look, maybe that over sun soaked look where it looked like everything was a little poisoned, a little less vibrant than it should be, a little more lifeless than it should be. And it really felt, the whole atmosphere felt very dreamlike to me at first. And I was thinking for the at least the first third of the game or so, is this whole thing some sort of a dream state? The environment really sort of played into that with me. And the other thing that I realized very early on about the environment, and I never heard talked about, and I may be wrong about this, but it struck me this way. I love how the seemingly the environment is strategically designed to feel vast and open. Obviously, this is a big place. But if you look from any vantage point in the game, it's still set up so you can't see too far in any particular direction, which had to require a good deal of work. Now, if you, in, in other words, the landscape is obscured on all sides by a high cliff or a mountain or, you know, a, pa- a crumbling palace or a giant waterfall or forest or whatever on one side, on all sides. So, because if you could see too far in the game, you'd be able to see these 60, 80, 80, 90 meter tall giants. And it's, so it's very strategic that it's, and it's very believable that from a vantage point, you can't see everywhere, even though at the same time, the world feels vast. And that had to be an interesting juggling act for design because that was one of the first things I went in kind of to dispel the notion of, okay, where are these colossus? How big can these things possibly be? I have to be able to see them from here. And you really can't. And that coupled with just the impressive design of the landscape. Again, you, as you said, that bridge, that massive bridge that spans from the shrine to the entrance or exit of the forbidden lands. And the fact that there's a physical entrance in and out of this place is really Strange. There's a lot of dreamlike qualities to the design of this and otherworldly, you know, almost feels like, you know, people have talked about the Garden of, of Eden with this game, which makes sense, but almost like uh, a link between the re- the real world and the dream world or the real world and the world of the dead, the land of the dead or something is Dormin death, you know, the God of death or whatever. So a lot of philosophy that played into that. And you know, the other thing, you know, I went down a Ueda rabbit hole with this game, just thinking of a, a developer I never heard of, 
he's so vaunted as this creative genius. He's kind of put up there with all of those, you know, all the create Kojima and all the developers that we hear about that are such geniuses and the backbones of the studios that they represent. But he had a lot of interesting philosophies that I thought a couple of things were really interesting. He said he designed the Colossus as sort of an inverted Zelda dungeon that he sort of designed each one as sort of this inside out Zelda dungeon, which I thought was really demonstrative of, of his philosophy. And the other thing that he said that I really thought was interesting was that he really despises NPC characters in games because it's inevitable that these characters, if they say something, whether they're selling you something or offering a, a hint or even if it's something that's a useless little one-liner or something, the fact that they repeatedly say the same thing to you really takes you out of the realism and the experience of the game. And that's why he refuses to put them into games like Shadow of the Colossus, which I thought was really interesting. I never really thought of it that way before because we love JRPG games. We love them so much. And those games are typically full of those things dating all the way back to the 8-bit era. But the fact that he sort of purposely designs these games to flow a certain way and to feel a certain way and in order for every encounter to feel like you're immersed in this experience is really why I appreciate it's a really unique sort of stance on game design. And I'm really it, it put me down now. He only has a few games to his name and I guess they're working on their fourth thing now technically, but it really makes me want to go in and tackle everything he's done because he has a really, even if you don't like his approach, it's a really interesting and unique approach to designing games that I really think is, you know, something special, you know, at least to me who, you know, is not aware of a large portion of things out there. But the other thing I wanted to talk to you, Kyle, if you don't mind before we close is what do you think of the ending? A lot has been said about the ending of the game. You know, is it, negative is it positive is it pessimistic is it optimistic does it represent any sort of hope what's going to become of wander all of those things what do you what do you make of the ending and and how does it you know how does it leave you i don't know i i don't know what the ending is i i don't know first of all i mean it's it's sad it's it's lonely it's it's permanent those are the things that kind of come up for me as the bridge kind of collapses behind them. They all make it, by the way. It looks like one of them isn't going to make it, one of the horsemen. But it seems like they all make it out, and obviously Mono has this, what appears to be baby Eco, <laughs> But uh, ba- baby, um, you know, ba- I guess maybe baby Wander or whatever. I don't know. I, I don't, I really don't know what, what the game is trying to say at the end, uh, where it leaves you. It seems almost purgatory-ish. But very melancholy, like you said, and and lonely and dark and and permanent, like I said, just the stasis. The Titans are gone now, or the Colossi are gone now, so it really is just them there and yeah. the various birds and insects or whatever. So what, what what about you? What do you think? Well, you know, I'm hopeful that there's more Colossi. Maybe they only chose 16 to sort of enshrine these various parts of Dormin and imprison him, but maybe there's other maybe there's other ones out there. We gotta we got to be hopeful. Of course, our 16 beloved Colossi that we did get to know are vanquished. That's sad. But, you know, I, I read a lot of things about the ending of this game. The fact that Mono is supposed to be 
the Dark Queen, I guess, who is the antagonist from the eco game, which I'm completely unfamiliar with, so I don't know about that. The way they sort of play, the games sort of play into each other. That Wander, you know, I think I like the ending, and if I'm reading this correct, I don't know if I am, but the ending, we talk about a tragedy, it feels very Shakespearean, like a Shakespearean-style tragic ending in that Wander does get his wish. He does get to... You know, again, Mono is resurrected. Wander gets to be with her, but he gets to be with her as an infant who's ba- basically being taken care of by her. So it's this ironic twist of an ending. And also, if you pay attention to what Dormin says in the beginning, he sort of alludes to something's not going to be right even when you achieve this goal. And Wander says it doesn't matter. Whatever. Like, bring it on. Like, I need this to happen. So that tragedy is interesting. And then we don't really know Amon's relationship again to Wander, he leaves with his men. He sort of casts the sacred sword into the into the fountain and dispels the whole thing. And I get I guess again that's supposed to imprison the Dormin character and sort of banish him once again. But the thing is, he says on his way out, like, I hope you make it wander and I hope you get a, an opportunity to atone for your sins. So Will baby Wander have another chance to grow up and sort of right the wrongs that he did and how all that happened and all that kind of stuff? Really interesting. Again, like you have to glean every sentence from this game for meaning because they don't give you a lot. You know, it's the opposite of spoon feeding. It's, you know, they really make you work (laughs) for every bit of meaning that you could extrapolate from this whole thing. But I think it's, I think it's tragic, but it also, because of Eamon's line that maybe Wanda could atone for his sins, maybe there's something in the offing, which leads me to, you know, if you're if you're comfortable, Kyle, which leads me to how I want to go out with this one parting shot. Yeah, please. Now yeah. that I've finally been to these heights, I've experienced this beloved game and I've learned about Fumito Ueda and his distinctive game design philosophy and all of that. Kyle, what do you think is next or what do you think should be next or hope to see from the, you know, in the future from Ueda, from his band of geniuses over at Gen Design, formerly Team Eco. What do you, what would you like to see? Supposedly they're working on something. I mean, they did three games in what, 20 or 25 years or something. So they're not known for their blinding speed, (laughs) but what do you want to see? What would you choose to see if you could, if you could uh, get your wish granted? What would you like to see from these guys? Well, I don't know, because it, I guess a, an important part of this story, although I guess we can save it for The Last Guardian if we ever do that, is Ueda really fell from grace at some point with Sony. And it's really so Japanese games media and game dev is just so much more closed off. And obviously we don't speak the language, so we really don't know what happened. But something horrible seemingly happened during the last guardians development and it took a really long time for them to get that game out i mean even if you say team ego took a year off it took them a decade to get the game out wow and that's amazing and team ego obviously folded at that point and you wait left and kaido left and then they i think so it's worth we didn't talk much about kenji kaido but kenji kaido is the producer of the game and is uh, the producer of eco and was the producer, I think for a little while of shadow of the Colossus when it was, or I'm sorry of uh, the last guardian when it was still a PS three game. And then I think when it moved to PS four is when he quit or was fired. It's unclear, Okay, but he goes back to the eighties at Taito 
And uh, he was one of the lead designers on Tomba and Ape Escape and all of this stuff at Sony. So they were putting games out at one point and Ueda got his start as an animator on some pretty obscure 3DO and Saturn games. So this stuff can come from anywhere, which I think is really fascinating. But Sony showed an incredible amount of patience with them. And uh, The Last Guardian, I think, was the result of that. And some people like it, but I don't think anyone really cares very much about that game. Um, and certainly, and, and it was in no way worth the wait. But Ueda is making another game. I don't think Kaido is with him anymore. But Gen Design, like you said, is the new the new team's name. Gen Design is the team that finished The Last Guardian, kind of the reformed team eco. Okay. And they signed a deal actually with Epic Games earlier this year in 2020. Epic is funding their next game. So they are making a game and it's going to be an Epic Store exclusive, it looks like, at least for PC. But I got to be honest with you, I don't care. I, I think that's my answer is I just don't care. I don't care. You know, like I, I think Shadow of the Colossus is a really interesting game. I really like it a lot. I'm glad I played it. Eco, I played a long time ago when I was in high school. I wasn't crazy about it. And the uh, the last guardian, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I was just in the industry during this entire fallout with Ueda and um, Kaido and Sony and Team Eco's destruction that I just feel like I'm like, I don't know. I don't you don't seem to be able to manage making games. He hasn't really put anything out since shadow of the Colossus that puts him in the auteur kind of category. Like you were saying with, uh, with Hideo Kojima or Neil Druckmann Druckmann, or yeah, exactly. Um, I just don't think he's anywhere on that level. I just, I just don't see the evidence of that. And so my honest answer is like, I'll, I'll be I'll certainly pay close attention when they announce a game, if it's coming to PlayStation, especially because that's my beat. But I don't really care what he does. next. <laughs> I have no expectations and I, I don't I don't know. I just uh, I'm not that interested in it. How about how about you? Yeah, well, first of all, I like your honesty. That's definitely that definitely bears out. And I appreciate that. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it would be nice to see. I understand people that are perfectionists that are less prolific but yeah, perhaps the body of work, just the sheer number of things that he's been, that he's run, that he's been behind. He just doesn't have enough, enough things built up to really have those accolades or really share the spotlight with those, with the Miyamotos and the Kojimas and the Druckmans and so on and so forth. Those, those creative directors, those showrunners, those game runners that are notoriously geniuses, basically. But yeah, he's he's interesting to me because I really like his philosophy. I know he talks about being sort of encumbered by his perfectionism, which is always a really interesting thing to me because it could be really prohibitive to getting things done. And I sympathize with that a little bit. But yeah, it's interesting. There's uh, I've experienced nothing of his of his or theirs except for this one game. I'm intrigued for sure, but I'd like to see where it goes now from here because his most you know if you think back to eco that very you know that very early game what is eco from 2001 or something i have it in my notes. yeah 2001 it's a very early ps2 game yeah so there's time now it would be nice to see some sort of evolution in subject matter in genre and and maybe maybe something really special with the approach to the gameplay since he seems so you know that seems such a part of the fabric of what he's all about or what his team's all about. Maybe something that could be, that could shake things up again in that regard would be 
a lot of fun, but I'm not, you know, I'm not sure what, but I'll, I'll definitely be paying attention. I know they're working on something and they can't, you know, they can't reveal what it is. The other interesting thing about Ueda is that he comes from a design and animation background, which seems relatively rare with the people running the shows in video games. I'm not talking about people that are inherently art directors or part of the, you know, um, creative, uh, what do you want to call it? Melu or the creative, I can't think of the word. Like the leadership team. The leader, the leadership. Yeah. The, 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 right. the biggest voice, the greatest voices, the brain trust, you know, there, that's not typical of yeah, animators. I, don't animators don't make games. I mean, they make games obviously, but they are typically not at the head of the team. Right. Exactly. So it's really interesting that somebody, you know, of his position would, would be marshalling the troops and sort of at the head, you know, sort of a key figurehead or whatever. So he interests me. Um, it'll be interesting to see what he does. I just hope, you know, it's a, it's that type of thing where you got to build up a body of work. You got to get something out, especially in today's climate, even more so than PS2 and PS3, I would argue, because you have not only do you have more coming out, I think really the issue is you have more great stuff happening now, I would argue. So and the great stuff is really great. I mean, if you look at the last five years in gaming, I don't have to know much to say some of the greatest video games have been created in the last five years that'll have very long lifespans. So, you know, it's sort of throwing down that challenge. Uh, I, I also just want to throw in, sorry to interrupt you, but no, just no in terms of PS4 output, in terms of the exclusives from the first and second parties on PS4, what's just funny is that The Last Guardian, I don't think would be in very many people's even top 20. I mean, when you think about all that's interesting, the great games on the, you know what I mean? Like at least top 10. I mean, there are, you can just rattle off the games that are certainly better than The Last Guardian. So I just was always kind of put off by Ueda from that, just honestly, from that perspective, especially because their whole thing was like, we can't execute our vision on the PS3. We need to now rebuild the entire game on PS4. And then that's what they came up with. It's like, all right, well, yeah, why couldn't the PS3 do this? You know, <laughs> I don't. In fact, uh, Ryan Clements, my old buddy, Ryan Clements, went to Japan and saw it running on PS3. So it's one of those interesting. Oh, kind of that build of the game is just vaporware. I mean, that game doesn't doesn't even exist, but all right, thanks. So how did you is that how you wanted to wrap this this episode up or do you have like a segment that you want to do? Yeah, no, no segment. Um, You know, I just want to remind you guys, though, that the and I forgot to say this at the head of the show um, next week's topic is kind of a, a little bit of a cream puff, a fun one, a holiday thing, sort of easy breezy sort of topic. So I'm thinking maybe we'll pilot our new closing segment next week and just get a sense of what everybody thinks. It's a new audience participation sort of thing. I know I've mentioned it over the last few weeks. Decidedly different from what we've done so far. It will be a closing topic. I won't divulge too much yet, but I think it could be a lot of fun, so stay tuned for that. If it goes well, what we'll do is we'll run it out there for a whole wave of topics in early 2021. And I think it'll be an easy, it'll be an easy one. It'll be an easy thing to get involved with if you choose to, if our listeners choose to. And um, if that sounds good, I'll try to have that ready for the closing of our show next week. So we'll just kind of run off a little pilot thing and see how it goes. Yeah, that sounds good. I just want to remind everyone, although I'll be talking about this much more on Sacred Symbols, but we also, or I just also announced the new game that I wrote, Herboxia 2. Ooh. So that comes out, this kind of timestamps this episode, which we try not to do with Knockback, but that comes out February 3rd, 2021. 
on PS4, Vita, Switch, Xbox One, and PC, and it's backwards compatible on PS5 and Xbox Series X. Nice. Or forwards compatible, I should say. And um, <laughs> so if you're listening to this before then, then pick it up when it comes out. If you're listening to this after then, check it out when you can. It's a fun little space shooter. We're really proud of it. Right around the corner. And uh, what'd you say? It's right around the corner. I mean, that's only what? It is. It is. Two months off. Yeah, we're ready to go. The game's done. So we're actually just we're, since we're simultaneously launching on all consoles, we have to wait. That's the next day we can do it. So the game is pretty much ready to go. So so please look forward to it, as they say in Japan. Dave, let me kick it over to you for a dad joke. All right, my friend, I got one ready for you. This is going to be I didn't huge. forget this week. This is going to be tremendous. <laughs> I went the whole show without any giant puns at all. Just allow me the one. It's. Yeah, I yeah. All right. Go on. <laughs> Shadow of the Cow Osses. <laughs> Whoa. Hey. I'm just going to throw them oh. all in now. Oh. All I right, got Kyle. sausages the size of a gorilla's pichadilla. <laughs> pichadilla. Oh. Ah. deal. Funniest Italian word ever. Or pishy doodle, as we said pishy in Pishy doodle, as we used to say. It. Yeah. <laughs> Americanize that. Now, Carl. I apologize to you and our listeners in advance. There's not, I am sorry, but there's not very many dad, giant dad jokes out there. But I did find one. Kyle, what do you call a fear of giants? I don't know. Fee, fi, phobia. (laughs) So bad. I mean, that's 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 preschool bad. That might be, that might be the worst one in two and a half years. That might be. Yeah, it's, not, it's it's pretty bad. It's, it's a, a candidate. One, yeah, it's sure. certainly a candidate for worse. Yeah, it's a candidate. <laughs> sure. All right, Dig. Well, very well done. Thanks for choosing this topic. I had fun. And uh, yeah, it was a good. I'm, I'm glad I finally played it and got to talk about it. Hope everyone enjoyed our conversation. Remember, support us on Patreon if you can. Patreon.com slash Collins Last Stand for early ad free access. The ability to submit your questions, comments, concerns, thoughts and ideas to our show and to vote on other topics. The last month's topic winner, by the way, is 2018's God of War. So we're going to continue moving on with these PS4 exclusives. You guys got to think older. Like, why are you making this? Why are you making me play a game that came out two and a half years ago? All right. (laughs) But nonetheless, nonetheless, that's what you want. That's what you'll get. It's strange, but we're not going to question it. Also, Dig. So I don't know if you know this, but it's a running joke on Patreon that Avatar The Last Airbender, the cartoon series, (laughs) gets put on the vote and then loses every month. And this has probably time. happened for probably every. So I, I want to just, I haven't even talked to you about this at all, but how do you feel about us just agreeing to do that next year? That's yes. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. Let's absolutely. do it. So we'll do one episode one. It's not getting like individual oh. season. Cause it's three seasons, I think. And I think it's probably maybe cumulatively like eight hours or something. You That's know? okay. Like, That's I don't really think it's okay. that long. So, but so I, if anyone listened, well, a lot of you listened this far. I see the the data, but there you go. Stop fucking stop po- bringing. It. I'll 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 let you guys know in the in the thread this week or month as well. But I can't stand it anymore. We'll just do it. Just do so it. So we can finally do something else. You bent his arm far back enough. He said, "Uncle, uncle, I'm, exactly." I'm comfortable uncle with Kyle. that, dude. Uncle Kyle, I'm comfortable with that. That gives us a whole year. I mean, we could do it. I'll tell you right now. We're gonna do it December thirtieth. Of 2021. The 2021. <laughs> and I won't actually watch it, but we'll do an episode about it anyway. Uh, so anyway, I wanted to just call that out, but beautiful. Dig, uh, hope you and the family are well. Talk to you soon. Thank you, my friend. You too. And uh, 
yeah, I hope everyone out there is enjoying their holiday season and whatever's going on in your lives. Stay safe. Be well. We'll talk to you next time. Goodbye. Knockback is a product of and a registered trademark of Collins Last Stand LLC and is recorded in Richmond, Virginia and Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, USA. The show is produced by me, Colin Moriarty, and was conceived of by myself and Dagan Moriarty, who is also my co-host. You can find me on Twitter at NoTaxation and on Instagram at CLS Moriarty. Dagan is on Twitter at Dagan1973 and on Instagram at DaganLikesToDraw. Knockback is edited by Dustin Furman. As you know, all things Collins Last Stand, including Knockback, are fan-funded on Patreon at patreon.com slash Stand. The following names are at the producer level or higher on Patreon, and we are eternally grateful for your kindness, generosity, and fandom. Nick DeMarco, Constantine Valencia, Andrew Morgan, Gregory Slavinsky, Stephen Nieder, Ross Marenka, Zach Parsley, Miguel A. Brewer, Morgan Ashley, Ben, Azan, Michael Vecchio, Brianne, Joey Finelli, Jerome Ferreira, SLDFMA, Ryan T. Mandel, Jorge Palomino, Enrique Perez, Don Lee, Daniel Diamore, Brad Cooley, Jeremy Key, Patrick Leslie, Homeworld Hub, William Holbert, 3DPrintShop.com, Chris Buston, Betty Ann Moriarty, Colin Jewell, Nelson LeBlanc, Daniel Johnson, Zach Bonham, an unofficial controller podcast, Jay Getter, Vexius, Jeff Mercado, Galja, of Fortuna, Boots, Megadet, Saul Balcazar, Raul Melendez, Bloody Fang, Eric Harden, Matt Martin, Rodney Coleman, Chris Moore, TB Lightning, Andy Kinnanen, Taylor Barkley, Chris Galvin, Ryan Murdoch, Mason Cadillac, Ollie Fritz, Chris Buston, Zach Allen, George Anthony Nunez, Kyle Hagel, Colin Love, Daryl E. Naiman, Ryan R. Kittredge, Toby Ryland, Michael S., Damon Weathers, Carl Tolman, Richter86, Barrett Boswell, Christopher DeVaio, Kevin Kamaki, Blake Israel, Sean Mason, Josh Gravelick, Brian Chan, Organic Produce, Ali C83, Isaac Wastman, Mubarak, Carlos Algaret, McDog18, Richard Hebert III, Miranda Grubba, Ray Lasia, David Castanez, Donnie Nolan, Josh Yeager, Matthew Cooper, Toothless Gibbon, Martin Beck, Gavin, Joey Andrzejczyk, Nathan R., Joe McPartland, Christopher Moore, Lawrence F. Prokop, Colin Davenport, Eric Finkenbeiner, Lou and Ray Loper, Dylan Burns, John Schultz, David Chestnut, Yusuf, Anton K., Alan Tremblay, Tyler Bello, Tony Zuniga, Sean Battershall, Robbie Hensley, Alex Cabrera, Lennon Brixey, Corey Wyatt, James Kinsler III, Hugo's Desk, Peter Reynolds, Will William O'Carroll, JSC0828, Jesper Jansen, Phil Crone, Throw7, Adam Nix, Josh McKinney, Michael Gates, Alex Gates, Sean Chandler, Petro Rose, Gio Corsi, Greg Lada, Gerald Pennington, Justin Wagaman, Paul Joyce, Chad Lewis, Todd Paxton, Joshua Smallwood, Shane Rayum, Spencer Brand, John Cordero, Greg Julefs, Mark Boggio, Keith A. Lewis, Marius Carson Peterson, Tyler Harris, Matthew Purdue, Toby Schutman, Patrick Harper, Mad Mock Media, Jonathan Rice, and Casual Misfits Gaming.